Okay, we are live, and <clears throat> let me tell you guys exactly what is going on right now with this live stream. Um, um, I did a recent video critiquing an apologetic philosophy or, or method uh, called presuppositional apologetics, and I, my my contention was that this is not a biblical method. And Cy Tenbruggenke is the gentleman who I used as my model for that method. And I offered a critique of his specific claims. And so he is joining me now live to respond to what I said. So the question we're looking at is, is it biblical or is it not biblical to use a presuppositional method? And I'm going to let Sai uh, introduce himself. But first, I'll say this. For those watching live, um, we're going to put all of your questions at the end. After me and Sai have lots of time to talk, then we're going to answer your guys' questions. But I am going to prioritize the questions from Christians today because my goal is... We're asking, is it biblical? And while we have plenty of atheists, I know who will be joining us today and skeptics, we will try to get to your questions after we answer the Christians ones. That's just the way we're gonna do it for today. I think it's the wise thing to do um, since the question is about uh, the theology of it. So um, uh, so go ahead, anytime during our talk, you can load your questions in the live chat. You could just ask your questions and my friend AJ is gonna take those and put them in a file. He'll send me that later. So you can ask the question anytime, we'll answer them at the end. So, um, Sai, what would you like to, to share by way of introduction? I would just like to say hello and uh, thank you for this opportunity. And um, I'm glad that you made that video pointing out the unbiblical nature of the apologetic that I espouse and using me as a poster boy for that. But <laughs> <laughs> hopefully we can talk about that. And uh, we have interacted a little bit on Twitter already, um, you know, about our soteriology. Um, for those who are not familiar with that term, it's about, you know, how we are saved. And I think that's going to be a big point in the difference in apologetic methodologies, because this is definitely a reformed apologetic. But uh, one thing I have appreciated, though, is that um, of all the people who do not hold the reformed view, I felt that you have been kind in your treatment of it. I think you've been erroneous in your treatment of it, but I think you've been very kind. I appreciate and, uh, that. Yeah. And I have watched a lot of your videos since uh, yesterday we had agreed to do this. And um, I think you, you belong to a Calvary chapel. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. Yeah. And they're very concerned with um, scripture. And that's what I really appreciate about you. And uh, I'm, I'm just curious, if you became a Calvinist, would you lose your job? Um, I don't know. And it wouldn't stop me. <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 that's good to know. And um, apparently we have at least one mutual friend. I saw that Daniel Comfort follows you. And um, we've exchanged a lot on Twitter via memes. But I did meet Daniel once. And uh, he's a great guy. And of course, I love his dad, Ray, and all the people at uh, Living Waters. And I'm sure that you have an association with them. And I love them dearly. And I think that you'll find that when we um, have this conversation, that um, we are probably a lot closer in our theologies than people think we are. And I think it's only because of the labels that people tend to shy away from them. Like I can talk to somebody who's not reformed, but I can't talk to an anti-Calvinist because as soon as you mention the name, then they freak out on you. But I hope that we have a wonderful discussion. One thing I, I wanna say upfront is that I offered to do this offline, you know, just so that we, cause I don't want this to be like, we're trying to win anything. I think both of us are trying to honor Jesus Christ. And I hope that that's um, what comes of this discussion. So I appreciate the opportunity and um, let's go. All right. So um, <clears throat> I, I'm hoping that uh, in, I agree with actually most of everything you just said. So, but I'm, I'm going to offer one point real quick. And then I want to ask you to explain like in a nutshell, presuppositionalism for the sake of myself and everybody else, because maybe I misrepresented you in some sense. Um, so the one clarification is this, I'm going to say that even if I was a Calvinist, I would still think that these objections to presuppositionalism stand because they're founded in the in the teaching of scripture, not in my view of anthropology. 
if that makes sense. Um, yeah. I, I think so. Um, so that being said, um, so even if I was Calvinist, I think I'd still have the same objections. Well, but, it, it, oh, sorry, go on. Oh, but I was going to say, can you just give us like in a nutshell, what is presuppositionalism? Um, and did I in some way misrepresent you in the last video I did? Well, first of all, it is the case that some people of the Reformed persuasion do not hold to presuppositional apologetics. R.C. Sproul would be um, one good example, and uh, sadly he's departed us, but I, I love his talks. And if anybody who's really interested in somebody who actually knows what they're talking about instead of me, if they want to um, look online, I believe you have to pay for the debate, but actually Greg Bonson, who um, you know I learned most of this apologetic from, debated R.C. Sproul at one point. And they had a wonderful loving exchange because they agreed on 95% of their theologies. They, they just disagreed on apologetic methodology. So I would encourage people to look up the debate between R.C. Sproul and Greg Bonson. You can find that for free on some website called like archive dot something or other. But I did find it. I searched Sproul and Bonson. And, yeah, uh, actually, I, I remember doing that as well. And, um, you know, but it's probably copyright. So they're probably um, ripping off the people that own the copyright. Oh, maybe. And, uh, but um, yeah, I think, <laughs> but I think you could probably find it. But as far as the presuppositionalism goes, is that we start with the presupposition that God exists and that His Word is true. And the biggest critique that we have of that um, apologetic methodology is that they believe it's circular; that you cannot start with God to prove God. But what people who do not realize when they hold to other apologetic methodologies that their view is also circular. But what Van Til, I would say the father of this apologetic, would say that we have a, a virtuous circle rather than a vicious circle because we appeal to God who knows everything in order to prove anything. And what um, other methodologies will do is they'll say, well, I'm going to use my reason to try and reason to God. And we say, well, how do you know that your reasoning is valid? And when they give a reason for that, they're also arguing in a circle. And one thing that Bonson said, he says, if you have an argument with an unbeliever, and you do not start with the presupposition that God exists, and you do not hold that in your argumentation, let's say you win the argument. You win the argument at a very high cost because that uh, person could come around and say, okay, I do believe that your God exists, but guess what? I didn't need him to get there. I used my own autonomous reasoning. Now, we as Christians believe that reasoning is not autonomous. Uh, Romans eleven thirty six 36 is from him, through him, and to him are all things. That includes logic. That includes science. That includes rationality it includes all of these things and what other methodology will say you know what i'm going to give you all of these things so that you can reason autonomously to the god that i believe in but what they end up reasoning to is not god at all because they say well i have reason to him without god and i say that you know it's unfaithful to the god of the bible because i would argue and i know that you went over some of those verses the other day that everyone is certain that god exists so that when you try and you know pile these evidences upon them, first of all, you're calling God a liar because God has said that everyone knows that he exists. So when you add these evidences to try and convince the person that God exists, you're denying what God has said in his word. And I know you used a, a few examples in your critique of presuppositionalism, but I would say the majority of the, answer, of the critiques that you offered, of the evidences you offered, first of all, they were miracles. And secondly, they were not offered to convince people that God exists. Most of the ones that you offered were miracles in support of the deity of Jesus Christ. And even if that were the case, you know, I would say to the um, evidentialists, if you can do miracles, go for it. But that's not the kind of evidence that people are talking about. The evidence that you cited in scripture was miracles. And I say, wow, if you can do miracles, go for it. But they're not talking about the complexity of the eye. They're not granting reason to the professed unbeliever in order to conclude something that isn't God at all. And the line that I like to use is that God is not a God that we can reason to. He's the God that we cannot reason without. 
So I do not want to grant the very thing that I'm trying to disprove to the unbeliever, that you can reason without God to try and get to God. I'm saying, no, you can't even reason without God. And, and the th here's the thing. If they will concede that point, I will discuss any evidence with them. I will go through every scripture verse if they concede the fact that they can't know anything without God. But, of course, they very rarely do that. Okay, so there it is. That's the free sub view. There's that, a, that's in a, in a nutshell. I mean, there's a lot there. And you know, I lot, don't like yeah. when people give a lot of different facts because then you forget about the first one that you want to refute and it sounds like you don't have a refutation of it. So I will try not to do that in the future. Fair enough. And, and I've already given a whole video, me unpacking my disagreements here. So I think people in the video description in this video, you actually can see um, size video called How to Answer the Fool, which is kind of what I based my critique on. And then my video, which was critiquing it. And so that's already there. And we encourage you guys to look at that. Now we're just trying to let us interact with our ideas. Um, so I have a bunch of different things that I actually agree with and disagree with. Um, so it's the question is kind of like, what, what do you pick? So let's, we'll just start with one. Um, first question for you, Sai, what, <clears throat> um, what exactly do you think the unbeliever knows in addition to, to God's existence? There was other things I think you thought you are certain of more than just the existence of God. Is that right? Like like the Bible or uh, the deity of Christ or what is it? I would say that I could confidently say that the unbeliever has sufficient knowledge of the God for their condemnation. There are some who will argue that they know the triune nature of God. I won't go that far. But if you read in the King James Version of the Bible, it talks about their knowledge of the Godhead. But, you know, I don't I would not go. I, I'm not going to deny it. But I think that there's things that we believe, for instance, that God is love that make that do not make sense unless mm. uh, God has a, a plurality in his being. So do they know the specifics? No, but I, 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 I won't say no, but I'll say I'm not sure. However, yeah. they have a sufficient knowledge of God for their condemnation. And that's I think that's clearly supported in Scripture. And I would I would basically agree with that. And that, this is where we go. We actually kind of agree ish. <laughs> and the ish is where I say, even though they've received information that is um, sufficient to give them basic knowledge of God, they may not at this moment believe that that God exists because of deception, because of sin, because of, you know, all those issues. And I think that that's what Romans 1 is teaching pretty clearly, um, is that they actually <clears throat> don't believe the things that creation has revealed clearly. And that, that's why they've been getting over to a debased mind, and they exchange the truth of God for the lie. So you know, that's, that's very interesting that you say that because I've been watching a bunch of videos recently. And there's this fellow out in California named Mike Winger. And uh, <laughs> he did this talk. It, it was called about people who have never heard that God exists. And one of the things you said in this talk is that everyone is aware of God. Now, one thing I think that you'll find is that I hope to be abundantly consistent <clears throat> in the way that I present this apologetic. And I've been watching um, over the last day a lot of your videos, and I say that they are inconsistent with the things that you believe. Now, you cannot say that everyone is aware of God. The best that you could say is that everyone was aware of God, and now they've suppressed it to such a degree that they're no longer aware. But I think you would agree that it's a culpable suppression of the truth. Because one thing that you said, they suppress the truth. And one thing that a person must have in order to suppress the truth is they must have the truth. They can't suppress something that they don't have. And of course, later on in Romans 1, it says they're God-haters and they know his righteous decrees. And I think that just does not make sense with somebody who does not really know that God exists. But like I say, to the degree that they've suppressed it, I don't know. And I've seen that the older that people get, that they tend to not be as interested in this type of conversation because they think that God is handing over them to their suppression. But I think it's clear in Romans 1 that everyone has sufficient knowledge. And as you admitted in that talk, everyone is aware that God exists. And I think that's the consistent view. I don't know if I use that phrase, 
everyone's. I know aware. you did. I just watched it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I probably was, they're aware of God and they're aware of morality. Um. Yeah, and maybe I'm just being clumsy with my phraseology here. I think everyone has been given sufficient information to know who God is. But even when I say everyone, I'm not talking about a six-month-old baby. Um, I am. Yeah, so that's another question I have for you. Um, so you're, you're basic. You're, my first question was, like, what exactly does everyone know? And you're, you didn't, you're, you're not saying Jesus or the Bible. You're saying just that there is a God, and it's the true God, that they're right. aware that he exists. I think a lot of people make the mistake in saying that Romans 1 says that people know there's a God. Well, that would leave them with an excuse. But Romans 1 says they're without excuse. And I would say it follows that they're without excuse because they know the God. Because if they just know a God, they could say, oops, I picked the wrong one. I thought it was Allah. I thought it was Vishnu. But mm -hmm. Romans 1 clearly says they're without excuse because they know the God. Yeah. Well, Vishnu wouldn't wouldn't even qualify because it's well, a that's different right. kind that's, of category. That, that's of right. That's right. But I mean... Not a lot of people know that, so we don't have to go into that. <laughs> yeah, and the point, and Allah, it seems, the Muslim view of Allah incorporates within that view a deliberate, intentional rejection of Jesus Christ. So that's that's not just a God. That's, like, very specific with a rejection of Jesus. Um, so that obviously is a problem. <laughs> right, but I would typically argue yeah. that the only theist is the Christian because, um, as it says in uh, Psalm 96.5, all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. So when somebody say, what about other theistic views, or you're atheistic towards all those other gods, they say, no, there is no other god. There's only one god. So I would say, you know, just to be clear, in Romans 1 says that everyone has sufficient knowledge of the god to leave them without excuse. Um, okay, so <clears throat> maybe, we can, maybe we can tackle some of the specific scriptures, because that, to me, that's the exciting part. Well, actually, before we do that, and I would like to do that, um, okay. I would like to do, you know, ask you a couple questions to see, sure. uh, to see if you're consistent. Are you, uh, certain, are you certain that God exists? I think I am, actually. Okay, now, of course, when you say, I think I am, that is not certainty. Oh, no, no, I, it's not that I am uncertain. It's that, okay, the word certainty... <laughs> which look up a definition of the word certainty. And it seems like different people use that word to mean very okay, different. Okay, well, well, let me help and you so with that then. The way I use the word certainty, I'm totally certain God exists. Okay, okay, that you would be talking about psychological certainty. Uh, see, that's be, the thing. I, I don't think that's just no, okay, psychological. Well, well, let me help you with that because like, psychological certainty is being certain of something that could be false. You're just convinced of it. So I'm talking about epistemic certainty and then I will I, I'll rephrase the question. Is it epistemically certain that God exists? The proposition that God exists um, cannot fail to be true. I would say yes. Okay, and how do you know this? It's impossible for God not to exist. Okay, now, do you know this because you're a Christian, or does everybody know this? Everybody knows that it's impossible for God not to exist? I don't think right. everybody knows that. Okay, so when did you come to that knowledge, and how did you come to the knowledge that is impossible for God not to exist? That's a good question. I'm not sure. Um, <clears throat> I've always thought that God existed. When I posed myself the question, like in the quietness of my own heart and mind years and years ago, and I thought, is it even possible that God doesn't exist? I remember I didn't, you know, without, it wasn't that I was looking at science and I wasn't studying the Kalam or anything like that. I just, I just looked around at creation and I thought, there's no way there's not a God. <laughs> right. And but now, was, you're going, now you're going back to psychological certainty. I'm talking about epistemic certainty, the proposition that it cannot fail to be true that God exists. So this is where... Say, this is where maybe this is my own shortcoming here, right. but I can't wrap my head around the difference between psychological and epistemic certainty. And well, so I, would... I don't know that I can grant those peculiar definitions because I look at it and I go, I don't think it is even 
philosophically, potentially, reasonably possible that God doesn't exist. <laughs> I don't oh, okay. think that's even a possibility. Let, let's, um, get, let's get a little bit deeper than I know the atheists who are watching are not going to like this because I do this with them. But what is truth? Um, what, how would you define truth? And I don't want to put you on the spot because a lot of people have never answered this question. I think the traditional yeah. definition of truth is truth is that which corresponds to reality. Now, wow. that's not a definition that I use because I believe that it's lacking. But for the purpose of discussion, I don't mind using that. Yeah, I, I like the definition I like for truth is the way things really are, whether right. you believe it or not. <laughs> truth is that which corresponds to reality. Now, would you say that you know things to be true? Yeah. Okay, and you know things to be true because you know what is real. Well, I don't, I mean, in that sense, there's not much of a difference between truth and reality. Well, well, um, if the truth is, if the appropriate definition of truth is truth is that which corresponds to reality, you have to know what's real in order to know what's true. Is that not fair? I mean, what's, how is what's real different than what's true? Well, I don't, I don't even mind if, you know, so if you yeah. conflate the two, but let me ask you this question. Do you know what's real? And how do you know what's real? Um, this is where I don't know how to give a simple answer. So if you're going to, if you're trying to lead me to where I say that I'm using my reason to discover truth or, or find out what's real, then I will, I'll admit that openly though. I, I don't know if I can follow down the cherry path that you're letting no, me, no, but, but I will, I will openly that... admit I definitely use my reason um, in discovering what's true, but I would say I do not use my reason in determining what's true, which there's a difference between discovering it and determining it or deciding it. But you would, you would admit that your reasoning is not autonomous, that from God, through God, and to God are all things. So your reason is dependent on God. Yeah. You would have no problem admitting that. My very, I would go a step further and say my very existence is dependent okay, upon now, God. Okay, now. But I didn't know that without thinking about it. Is the reasoning of unbelievers dependent on God? Yeah. See, that's the presuppositional method. Since it's dependent on God, we don't say, okay, you can have those things. Now, I know you cited um, examples in Scripture of the if, if verses, but Paul does that in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. He says, if, what I, if Jesus is not raised, you know, you, know um, you might as well eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. And I don't think that those, I, th I think that you would agree with me that Paul was certain that Jesus rose from the dead. So I think that those examples that are given in Scripture are not to convince people of the existence of God, but their judgment on people for their unbelief. And I think, you know, as um, was demonstrated here, is that we both depend on God for reasoning. And that's one thing that I like to point out with the unbeliever. And I start that as a foundation. Because if they come along and they say, you know, I don't really believe that God exists, you say, here, let me give you some evidence. You are going to convince them of something that's not the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible says you can't even do that unless you start with God. And like I say, the example in Scripture were not people that denied the existence of God. These were people who denied the deity of Jesus Christ, but they believed in God. And I say that's consistent with the biblical methodology. And if you want to bring up your verses, I'm all ears. Sure, sure. And I'll, I'll just point out, like I, I, and this is where I would agree with R.C. Sproul on this topic and say, um, you, can't, you can't think anything without using reason. You, you just can't. Um, and you might say, I started with reason in the in the thought process of how I got in my thinking from from looking around to going yes there's a God I used reason in that process but I could not have had reason or creation or existence itself without God having given all those things to me and so I would say in a sense I start with God that's in the what he calls the order of being or the ontology but I but I have to start with reason because that's how God has set it up 
Um, I started well, that you way. Admit, you start with God, and I'm saying the only difference between our methodologies is that we admit that, and classical apologists and evidentialists deny it. I well, mean, they, I, I don't. So if, I, you press, if, they, if you press them on it, they say, yes, I do start with God, but they say, I really start with reason. Well, wait a minute. How do you know your reasoning is valid without God? So I'm seeing you really do start with God, but most people yeah. in those apologetic camps deny where they start. I, see, I, okay, I, I think my reasoning is only valid within within the the worldview that embraces that God is real, right? That that only makes sense. But if I was an if I was an atheist and someone tried this <clears throat> on me, I because it's really hard to think about these issues to think about how we can reason and where does your where does thinking really come from? All this kind of stuff, um, logic. These are stuff. It's tough stuff, even for me to think about. I, I admit it. Well, um, but if I was a that's fair. That's fair. If I was a skeptic, though, my response I think would be, well, I mean, of course, reason is true. Lo logic's just true of necessity. There's no. If logic wasn't true, then there'd still be a truth about logic. It just has to be true. That would be where I would fall back if it was me and someone was trying to use that method on me. Um, and, and if so I was engaging an unbeliever, if I was engaging an unbeliever, I would demolish that view. Yeah, but, but okay, <laughs> let's let's see. Does the scripture support your perspective? And that's where I think it's wrong. So if I could take you to the first passage I shared in my video, right. I didn't read the whole thing, so maybe we could read the parts I didn't read uh, today. So First Kings eighteen, you know the passage, right? So for the audience, <clears throat> Elijah is is in the midst of a very pagan Israel, and they're worshiping Baal, and they have hundreds of prophets of Baal, and there's just Elijah and some 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 godly guys hiding away in some caves. And um, Elijah comes and says, let's decide once and for all, who is God? This is, it. well, I tell you what, instead of uh, saying it to you, summarizing it to you, we should probably read it, right? All right. Because I think the way it's written in 1 Kings 18 um, makes <clears throat> the presuppositional method um, impossible to apply to this passage. So let's see. <clears throat> um, in, in 1 Kings 18, 21, it says, and Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. So would you, how would you feel if I went up and did ask somebody, if God's God, follow him. But if, if not, then, then follow, you know, Vishnu. Um, would um, that be I something you would refuse? Would you allow this? Uh, it's not a matter of what I, I would allow or not allow. I, mean, I think in, in, what would be consistent. What would be consistent with Scripture? Because I would say that the people of Israel did know. For example, if um, Elijah did not do this uh, miracle, which was a miracle, and like I say, if you can do miracles, do it. But if he did not do this miracle, and the Israelites were killed that day, would they have an excuse? And if you say no, they wouldn't have an excuse. Why not? Because they had sufficient reason or because they actually did know that God exists. And you'll see that the people in this passage, as you continue, the worshipers of Baal, they were the ones who actually were trying to show people that there was another God. And when Elijah convinced them that it was the God of Christianity, he didn't say, well, okay, here's our circumcision tent. Come on in, you know. He slaughtered them. And, of course, it was a joke that I said about William Lane Craig if he wins a debate. He has to kill his opponent. Clearly, that was a joke. But if you're going to use this as the atheist who is standing up on the other pillar, he would be considered the prophet of Baal. And if you're trying to convince that person with evidence, is if you're using this passage as a proof text for evidential apologetics, then the proof of this text is that you're supposed to kill the, per the person that you've convinced of it. Why? Because they already knew. And I think this is a demonstration to the Israelites. I brought up a couple of things I'd like to respond oh, to if I can. 
So <clears throat> one of the things you shared there is the idea that they would be, there's two things I want to address. Uh, one is the idea that there would be with, they would sort of have an excuse if they didn't really know about God. If they were honestly going, I'm really not sure, is Baal God or is, is, is Yahweh God? Like, I don't know. And if they were in that place that they now have an excuse. And I think that is an unbiblical perspective. I mean, they are without excuse because they should know who God is. And they may have been moving into deceit. Jesus even talks about the one who who uh, sins without knowing it is beaten with few stripes. He's still beaten, though. He's not without excuse. Well, um, let, let me, I mean, before we uh, go too much further, this is one of my biggest objections to the evidential position, mm -hmm. is that if they should have known but didn't really know, then we come to the conclusion that it's only probable that God exists. Because we are trying to use these evidences to try to convince them of the highest probability. And you have admitted that on a number of your videos, that proof is not supposed to give people certainty. It's supposed to give them the highest likelihood. And I'm saying nowhere else in Scripture is God talking about probability or is God talking about a likelihood. Even when you went to Acts chapter 17, Paul was not professing belief in a, in a probability or a likelihood. Even Elijah wasn't here. I mean, he was showing and I think mm -hmm. that it was a judgment even on the people of Israel. Say, look, when you deny yeah. God, this is what's going to happen to you. Well, we'll come because we're going to keep reading the passage. But, mm -hmm. but um, I would say if I could respond to what you've heard me say, and perhaps I didn't say it carefully because I'm still learning as I do this thing, as I try to share. I mean, really, I'm a Bible teacher who does apologetics. It's, I'm not an apologist who occasionally uses the Bible. I'm a verse-by-verse -verse guy. This is like who I am, you know. Um, <clears throat> but... Uh, I would say that the arguments for God, not every argument gives 100% certainty. I would agree well, I would with that. If, if but, you start with a presuppositional method, every argument does because you need God in order to reason. So I would say so every argument. I would suggest that the presuppositional argument, if if it's valid, which I think it is, you know, and I just don't know how to present it very well just yet. I'm still learning it. But if, if that argument's valid, it does give 100% certainty, but that doesn't mean every argument does. But if you boil every argument down to it's all the presuppositional argument, you're just saying, I have one argument, it gives certainty, and that's it. Well, but well, I, here, but I wouldn't, if I use this argument, I won't use it the way that I hear you using it. So right, I will well, use me, it in a very different fashion. clarify, though. It's not that this argument gives certainty. This argument starts with certainty. We're mm -hmm. saying that the certainty of God is necessary to argue. So it doesn't give certainty. It's See, and that's the difference between our two perspectives there, yeah. That's right, but continue. <clears throat> okay, so um, if your view whole is to hold, then the people in 1 Kings 18, they have to know that God, that Yahweh really is God, right? That, that Yahweh is the true God. They have to know this the whole time. Is that correct? Yes. Okay, so, but if we read the passage, I think it gives multiple places where it indicates they didn't know this. So um, let me, I'll, I'll keep reading. Verse 22, then Elijah said to the people, um, I, even I, only am left a prophet of Yahweh, the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut in pieces, cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God. And I will call upon the name of the Lord, Yahweh. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So this is clearly a, about the existence of of God, that's fair. But I don't think Elijah is presenting a probability. Well, I, you know, I think he's giving I a demonstration. Do with probabilities. It's just about right. fact. 
God. Well, you, you used the example in one of your talks. Uh, um, I think it might have been even in your critique about a policeman that holds his badge up to the uh, eyepiece, you know, to mm -hmm. prove that he's a policeman. But yeah. the person inside does not deny the existence of policemen. So this say, would be the same thing. This is God holding up his badge. But these people believe in the existence of God. So he's just showing his badge. And I'm saying, again, that's judgment. So See, like I say, so do they on. believe that Yahweh is God. The Israelites, well, yeah, they do it because otherwise God wouldn't have killed the prophets of Baal. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been a sin if they say, look, See, I, that, I just that's don't know. Where I, yeah, I don't think you can just assume what they knew because God God flooded the whole world. Does that mean the whole world all knew that Yahweh was God? Like, that doesn't make sense. Yes. They, the whole world was accountable. That, but what accountability and knowledge are not exactly the same. Okay. So, How much do they have to know in order to be accountable? What's the percentage? I Well, I, I wouldn't know for sure. But I, I know this, that even... In scripture, even when you sin without knowing, you are okay. still accountable. Now, let me ask you this question. <laughs> That's in the law, and, and Jesus affirms it as well. So you're saying that e these Israelites had sufficient knowledge of God for their condemnation before Elijah did this miracle? Even if they never had the Old Testament law, even if they were not Israelites, they already had sufficient information okay. for condemnation. So what is more information going to do if they already have sufficient well, let's see what it does. <laughs> we right. read the passage. All right. So <clears throat> the people say, okay, it is well. Let's do that. Let's see who is, who's God. Um, and then I pick up right here, verse 25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bowl and prepare it first for you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And it you know the story. Um, they, they do this. They say, Baal, answer us. There's no voice, no answer. They limp around and cut themselves. And I, Elijah mocks and ridicules them. Um, as part of a way of displaying the folly. Um, and then, uh, verse 30, it says, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. So they weren't even worshiping. you know. The, so he repairs God's altar. Uh, Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of Yahweh, the Lord, came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of Yahweh. And he made a trench about the altar as, as great as would contain two seas or seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour on it the burnt offering, uh, pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. They did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar, filled the trench also with water. So he's, he's making the task much more difficult to, to, dim, to be a greater demonstration of God's power. Um, verse 36, and at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, this is Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. And pause right there. He's let it be known. Let it be known. Like let knowledge happen this day. And the knowledge is that you are God in Israel and I am your servant. And I've done all these things at your word. But that's not saying they didn't know, though. That's holding up the badge, like you were saying. That's not like saying they didn't know. Well, let's but, let's just okay. Continue. But finish the passage. As we okay. So the, my first point, though, is that he goes, "Let it be known that," and it's that you are God in Israel. Yeah, I have no problem with that. I don't. That doesn't mean they didn't know. Okay, and then verse thirty-eight. He's it says declaring that, it. Um, sorry, verse thirty-seven. He says, "Answer me, O Yahweh. Answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God." And that you have turned their hearts back. So he's, right. he says, God's going to answer me so the people will know that Yahweh is God. And this connects to his opening statement of, you know, if, if, if Baal is God, then follow him. If Yahweh is God, follow him.
Well, the example that I give is the uh, snot-nosed kid who's to, you know, meeting a policeman who's six foot eight, and he says, I don't think you're a cop. He says, well, let the people know that I am a cop. And he takes out his handcuffs and he slaps it on them. It's not like they don't know. It's they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness because, as you said, if they would die, they would be condemned. But um, one thing, just, you know, I mean, if we're going to be consistent with this passage, we cannot pick and choose. Let's say that I grant you that they didn't know. So what was the evidence that Elijah gave? He called down fire from heaven to burn up an altar. And I'm saying, mm -hmm. look, okay, if you want to say that these people really didn't know, just like the people today that didn't know, if you want to call down fire and burn up an altar, I say, go for it, Mike. I actually want to see that. Yeah. Well, I, I, that's, I, not talking, that's not the complex. That's not the complexity of the eye. This is, this is miraculous evidence. Even uh -huh. if I grant you that they didn't know, which I don't, but even if I did, that's the evidence that was given. And I say, look, if you want to say that, if you want to cite this as an example of evidence, was given for the existence of God, then you have to keep going and say, okay, now this is the evidence I'm going to give. And if you can't do that, I don't think it's talking about the complexity of the eye because here they're not granting reason to the unbeliever. This is a display of God's power. And like I say, I don't think it's a display of God's power in order to convince so, them. I think it's in order to rebuke them. Okay. Let me, let me read, if I can just read the rest yep. of the next like three verses and then we can maybe sure. talk about mm -hmm. this some more. So, um, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, and here's the response, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, this is Yahweh, he is God. And this is, I think, my interpretation of it would be, this is them going, wow, that confirms it. Yahweh really is God. They were convinced by a miracle. I fully grant that. Um, and Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let none of them escape. They seized them, they, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And the people were not slaughtered. He actually tells them to go, uh, um, uh, or he just tells Ahab to go eat and drink. But the people were not slaughtered. The prophets were slaughtered, and that is a legal precedence God's already given for the people of Israel. You know, like we're not, if we were in ancient Israel and, and an atheist stood up in a debate and then lost, I could see a death penalty coming at that time and legitimately. But I don't think it applies. Well, let me ask you this. When a person comes to knowledge of God, do mm -hmm. they go from unbelief to belief or do they go from suppression of the truth to profession of the truth? Um, well, maybe it's maybe there's both. Maybe, well, no, they, they're, they're different things. Do they go from an actual disbelief in God to an <clears> actual <throat> belief in God or a suppression of the truth, as it says in Romans 1, of the God they know exists to a profession of the truth of the God they know exists? That's my would, question. What is so I agree with everything except for the phrase "the God they know exists." Well, I, I the would, thing is, I would if say they go, right, but they go from suppression of the truth of what? Not of Allah, not of Vishnu. They go from suppression of the truth of God to the mm -hmm. profession of it. So they don't suppress the truth of something they don't know. They suppress the truth of. I mean, it's truth. So it's the the truth of the God that actually exists. So I would say they don't go from unbelief to belief. They go from suppression to profession. So I guess in your view, suppression is what they do sort of outwardly to everyone else. They're acting like God doesn't exist, but they know they're suppressing it. They're fully aware of what's happening well, here. To the degree that they're aware, I don't know, but Bonson did his doctoral dissertation on the, the phenomena of truth suppression, of self-deception. So to the degree that they don't... One thing that you mentioned in your talk that I want to correct too is that, and I think a lot of presuppositions make this mistake, they say that atheists are lying. Nowhere in the Bible says they're lying. It says they're suppressing the truth. Now, could some of them have been outright lying? They might be. But I don't think that's consistent with what Scripture says. It's the truth suppressors. And then you're talking about psychological things that are going on that are way beyond my pay scale, where they you know, suppress stronger beliefs and they elevate weaker ones, and they're not necessarily in contradiction to each other. So I would not, for those people who are watching, 
not call them liars, but say what scripture says about yeah. them, that they're truth suppressors. So in a sense, you might say they're suppressing beliefs, whereas I would say they're suppressing truths. No, I would say that they're suppressing the truth of the knowledge that they have of the God that exists. So, so the truth of the knowledge they have, whereas I would say they're suppressing the truth about God's existence. Yeah, well, the thing is, I think one thing we're going to have to get to before the end of this is our soteriology, is how a person is saved. Because, again, if this is something that they can reason to autonomously, I would say it's not the God of the Bible. And, um, you know, so, like I say, we'll talk about that as we go on, but if you want to finish this passage. Sure, okay, so in this passage, my main point is that <clears throat> in, like, just a normal verse, whatever sort of study of the passage, it seems clear that the, the question was, is Yahweh really God? That's the question that they honestly have, and they're honestly doubting. And then this event happens, <clears throat> this miracle, which convinces them Yahweh really is God. He really is God. And then they respond. I mean, they're the ones that slaughtered the prophets of all. Like, these people did it. So there's real, like, this is a pretty strong evidence that they've had, like, a change of mind uh, on the issue. And so I think the evidence on Mount Carmel is really strong for... Well, like if, I say, if nothing else, for evidential apologetics with miracles, if nothing else. Okay, I, the thing, I disagree with your interpretation, but I will agree with you there. If it's a support of evidential apologetics, then the evidence that you're supposed to give is miracles. And since mm -hmm. you can't do that, I don't see any support otherwise. I, I would disagree with it, but, you know, the thing is, I, I will not uh, press that issue. I would say that they're <clears> without <throat> excuse, that they have sufficient knowledge of the God, so that if they were to die without this miracle, they would be without excuse. And I don't think it's just a probabilistic thing. They don't think, well, I'm condemning you here today because God probably exists. Nobody speaks in scripture about the probability of God. But that's what I would say. All of the arguments that are not presuppositional, they all talk about a probability of God. And that's not done nowhere in scripture. Um, yeah, well, and maybe you're right. Maybe we shouldn't use the phrase, you know, the probability that God exists. Maybe that's well, a, all of the a arguments, phrase to use. I don't know. No, but all of the arguments point to the probability. It doesn't matter whether you use it or not, because you're talking about the preponderance of evidence, a likelihood. And that's what you say through all of your talks. But then you don't talk that way. What, one thing that you had said in your talk, how much faith do I need? You said uh, it's not that we have it's not that we have hope that all things that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. You said that we know that God works together all things. for the, Now, that's ta not talking about something that's probabilistic, mm -hmm. but all of the uh, apologetic methodologies talk about the preponderance of the evidence. They talk about, you know, the tornado going through a junkyard, and what are the odds? So many trillion to one that it could formulate a 747. But if somebody who hates God, they're going to take that one. And if, if oh. there are odds, then the odds mean that that one is possible. That's what odds mean that the odds against it are well, so astronomical, but yeah. there being odds, me would say, well, you know, I just believe in this one, that could be the case. Otherwise it wouldn't be an odd, it would be a certainty. But this, again, we get to, <clears throat> um, my way I would separate this is just realizing that every argument for God is not an argument to this perfect certainty, but there is perfect certainty that God is real, that the God of the Bible is real. I believe that. Um, so well, I, I perfectly agree <clears throat> that every non-presuppositional argument does not talk about the certainty of God and therefore does not talk about the God that I believe in. Right, and that's a different issue. <laughs> if, if, okay, so <clears throat> let's let's look at um, another passage if we can. Sure. So um, let me see. The um, Where is it? passage where 
ah, here we go. And Mark nine, and I'm sure you, I'm sure you've been you've been doing this for longer than I have. You know, for many years you've been doing this stuff. I'm sure you've talked through these passages. I'm before. a boiler operator by trade, so uh, if anybody's watching, I say like a bury in and check everything you with scripture. What that also occurred to you to do, pick up some of the apologetic books that compare the methodologies. And one thing that you will find is that the methodologies that support evidentialism and classical apologetics, I had a friend of mine who did this exact thing. He picked up Sproul's book and he was chapters into it, not one Bible verse. He picked up Greg Bonson's book, Always Ready, or a Presuppositional Apologetics, Stated and Defended, and it's filled with scripture verses. So I say, don't listen to me. You know, because I'm a, a I'm a boiler operator and I'm just doing this because I see people misrepresenting the God that I adore. So I say, pick up these books and look and see which apologetic methodology actually does appeal to scripture. Okay, so, and I, I agree we should definitely, that's the whole point. This is what, what me and Sai are so in agreement on is like, the Bible can tell us we're wrong on this issue or and lead us in how to do it correctly because it's God's word. <clears throat> so, um. If someone has uncertain belief, they believe in God, but they're uncertain about it, is that does that mean they're believing in the wrong God? Um, I would say they're not professing belief in the God of the Bible, no. Okay, so that's in a sense it's but the thing is, the thing is, no, but Well, the thing is, you have to keep in mind, too, that we're talking about um, a, a psychological certainty as opposed to epistemic certainty. And psychological certainty, you know, I would say that, you know, people are, have times of trial, where um, they might begin to doubt, and Scripture says to be merciful to those who doubt. But I just do not know what it is like to have a relationship with a God that might not exist. I mean, if somebody were to come up to me and say, you know, I have a wonderful, loving relationship with my wife, I'm just not certain that she exists. You would have every right to question their relationship, if not their sanity. Mm -hmm. So, so you know, I think that people can have doubts of the providences of God, but once they start to doubt the existence of God, then it puts them in the judgment seat. Because for somebody like that, I would say, if these evidence have convinced you that God exists, which evidence could convince you that God does not exist? They say, well, I, my, my three-year-old died the other day, or this happened, and therefore I'm not so sure anymore. I say, well, then who is the judge in this? See, a Christian, when we see evidences that seem to indicate that you know, God might not exist. What do we do as Christians? Lean not on our own understanding and our ways acknowledge him, and he will make our pastor. That's what Christians do. But, but that's why I say also it's impossible to leave the faith. Because if you reason out of the faith because of evidences, it shows that your mind was never in totally submission to Jesus Christ. And that's why I have a lot of problem when people say that I reasoned with the evidence to God exists, because then they are still, I'm not only saying the courtroom example of being the judge, but they are putting their mind as preeminence over the facts. And if they have facts that contradict that, now they're not Christians anymore. I say, well, that is not a Christian. <clears throat> um, there's a lot you said there. <laughs> so let me, let me, let me ask this. Um, uh, Adam and Eve, um, was Eve, what did Eve know, right? In the garden, she knew a few things, right? She knew she knew the true God, and she had she didn't have a Bible, uh, but she did have the word of God on one particular issue, right? She had the word of God about do not eat of that tree. So okay. she knew she knew that. Um, and then Satan comes and he tells her, you know, no, 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 you're not going to die. You're not going to die when you eat that fruit. And... From my reading of the text, she actually believes Satan and is legitimately deceived so that she thought God's word was wrong. Even though she had God's word, she thought it was incorrect. How does that fit in with the presuppositional view about what she knew? Um, I, you know, I, I think, again, what was the, um, what was the uh, first temptation of Satan? If you eat of that tree, you're going to be like God. 
So I think it was not that she didn't know that it was a, a suppression of the truth because of that fruit that was in front of her. And I'm saying that's the same thing that happened with unbelievers today. They are making themselves God. They are making themselves Lord of their reasoning. They're making themselves Lord of logic. They're making themselves Lord of these things. And that's the same thing that Eve did. She saw this fruit. I'm going to be like God. Therefore, I'm going to suppress the truth that God said, do not eat of it. I think that's what happened has throughout scripture. And that's what happens today with people that I talk to on the street. So did she know? Absolutely. That, that what, what Satan said was not true? Yes, absolutely. Otherwise, it wouldn't be sin. Well, see, okay, I disagree with you. I don't think that's biblical to say that if you're deceived, it's not sin. Well, if I, I murder say, somebody and I'm deceived and think I'm doing a good deed, it's still sin. No, okay, that, that that's a fair statement. I, I would say that it would still be sin because the thing is, I noticed on one talk that you actually said if determinism was true, it wouldn't matter. I would still believe it. So I would say the same thing. If determinism was true, even if God determined they do it, they would still be guilty. So I will uh, concede some uh, things there. But I would also say that they did know. That they knew it was wrong you know i think that's consistent throughout scripture that that it wasn't yeah. just yeah i think that honestly si, and I, I could be wrong here but my it looks to me like what's happening is i you have kind of this um your your presuppositional you know view of things and you're sort of forcing it onto the text here because okay. the scripture is pretty clear that eve was deceived while adam knew exactly what, what he was doing and i don't think that you're your um, methodology or, or philosophy allows for Eve to be deceived, so you're just saying she wasn't. Well, that, that's fair. I don't mind. We all take presupposition to the text, but I can show you a lot of text, and then we'll expose your presupposition. But I say that, you know, I don't only read one passage and say, well, therefore, that's the case. I go throughout Scripture and I talk. We have certainty verses in Scripture that people are certain of the existence of God, and that's contrary to the apologetic methodology that is yeah. not presupposition. Well, it's con let's, it's contrary. Let's, let's, let's look it's at contrary. one of those. Contrary to what you said at the beginning of your talk, that you have psychological certainty, but epistemic certainty, if I were to press you on it like I do with an unbeliever, you would have to appeal to God. And if anybody has epistemic certainty, if, if anything is epistemically certainly true, you have to appeal to God. Yeah, and, and, and I'm that, saying, I looked, literally looked into what is certainty, what's epistemic certainty, what's psychological yeah, certainty. Is, it's, and it's, I'm it's, scratching it's, my head going, I don't understand these issues. Okay, that's so fair. So I'll say, I think I have what you're calling real certainty. I think I got that. Well, but the, I legitimately don't follow some of the terminology. Here's the problem, Mike. When I expose a refutation of the view talking about epistemic certainty, that's when you scratch your head. Now, that's fine. You can go and you can research it, what epistemic certainty is, and saying that without God, you cannot have it, and then come back and say, well, that's right, Cy. You know, we have there is some things that are epistemically certain that it cannot fail to be true, and we need God for that, and therefore I'm doing that with every argument that I do. That's fine. But if you scratch your head to the one thing that, you know, to one of the things that refutes your view, and that's a little bit problematic. I'm not, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm literally I'm not understanding what you're saying. No, no problem. I'm trying to. I'm just, I'm just going to be honest and not, not try little, to answer. I've heard you do this with people. You've asked people, like, are you epistemically? And they go, well, yes, I'm epistemically not. And you guys have seen you kind of discuss the definition of these. Debate with Eric Hernandez. Well, you saw one of the things that I cite often is William Lane Craig when they ask Lawrence Krauss, an atheist, ask William Lane Craig, Craig if he's certain that God exists. He goes, no. Yeah. And I'm thinking, that's a guy who I'm going to stand in church and, and listen to him say, nothing can separate me from the love of the Father. You see, I'm I think certain. I would have to say I'm certain God exists. I don't I don't see how I'm not. I don't understand and what... Okay, but then why unless, do you... Unless you define, some people define certainty as in, um, certainty is a level of confidence or... That is the problem. I don't believe in a probable God. First, all things for the good of those who love us. We're certain of this. Mm -hmm. So, And the reason yeah. we're certain of that is because we start with God. And yeah. I'm saying... 
it's now, absolutely true that God exists. But, but here's the problem: we some of the arguments, out. some of the arguments I present to demonstrate that truth are are not as good as some of the other arguments. Well, here's the problem, Mike: is that we start with God in church, and then we step outside of the doors of the church, and we don't start with God anymore. God is Lord of our theology, of our theology, but He's not Lord of our apologetic, and that has to stop. We have well, to start he's, no, he's the Lord God. of my apologetic. He I is just, not. That's, that's just fake. I mean, I don't want to okay. sound rude. That to me is a false piety to say God's not the Lord of Mike's apologetic. Well, my whole point here is I'm going to let the Scripture tell me how to how to teach God. Right. And I think Romans one, if you, you know, you see First Kings eighteen as saying miracles are a good apologetic. I think Romans one and Psalm nineteen says that looking at creation itself is a good apologetic. You can do this in a very high scholarly way by doing the Kalam argument, or you could just look around and say. Duh, there's a God. And I think both of those are legit. Well, here's the thing. In church, and I've watched your sermons, you start with God. You're very clear about starting with God in church. But if you want to show me how your arguments out in the world start with God, I'm all ears because I don't see that. Yeah, I don't I, I don't understand the phrase start with you, God here. You can present evidences. You can present evidence starting with God. You can do that, but most of the people that do it don't do it. They say, Well, let's put God on the shelf. Um, Proverbs 26, 4, do not answer the fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. What is the fool's folly? That there is no God. Do not answer the fool according to his folly. And what do most apologists do? Well, let's put God on the shelf and let's look at the evidence to try and conclude God. That's not starting with the God of the Bible, and that's not consistent with Proverbs 26, 4. Um, okay, Proverbs 26, 4 and 5 are, are coupled together for a reason. Absolutely. And you're, you're selectively throwing verse 4 at me. And then, well, let's go to verse and then I could I could easily throw, say verse four refutes your method because you are you are you're targeting the folly of the fool and so Proverbs twenty six four says not to answer fool according, according to, his, to folly. his folly and what is the fool's folly? It, well, it depends on the fool. <laughs> well, no, the fool's folly. This is in, in Psalm fourteen one. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. Well, but so Proverbs the is the, the fool in the book of Proverbs is the man who does not walk in a wise in a wisdom filled life. It's not just an atheist. Well, you know, I would say that Scripture tells us about the folly of unbelief. And I'm saying that, well, you would see that all of this is folly to unbelievers. You could talk about this till you're blue in the face. And that's another thing that has to do with our soteriology, because we're trying to convince them for reasons, you know, to be saved. And I hope that before the end of this talk, we do get into that, because I think that is the underlying problem with those other methodologies, is that you're trying to convince them the things that they need to do to be saved. And I say, then it becomes a work. Do you think that Elijah in 1 Kings 18 was trying to convince them that Yahweh was God and not Baal? No. See, I think he was. Yeah, no, I don't. I think that uh, he was demonstrating the greatness of God, but not in order to convince them of something they didn't know. Uh, I think it's, it was a demonstration of the glory of God. However, if that was the case, and I disagree with it, but if it was the case, the demonstration was miracles. It's still not what you're suggesting we do. What am, I, what am I suggesting we do? I don't know. Talk about the complexity of the eye. Talk about probabilistic arguments for God. I don't think that that calling down fire from the sky and, and consuming that altar was probabilistic. So if, what if I point to the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a miracle? Right. As being proof for the identity of Christ. And then the person says, wow, that body came back to life. Strange things happen in this world. Um, let's call Ripley's Believe It or Not. Yeah. And now there's See, just more. This very thing happened. I talked about that in the film. My friend had this very conversation with somebody, convinced this woman of the resurrection. And she said, but guess what? You didn't prove that he's God. And she was exactly right. Didn't. You know, so, but then you get to her presuppositions that she can't even examine the evidences of the resurrection. Now, did Dustin give her evidences of the resurrection? Of course. 
presuppositions give evident evidences, but not when they're challenging the truth of our worldview. I give them evidences, you know, in the hope that God uses them to save people, uses mm -hmm. uses them to peel the lid off. Now, if I had one evidence evidentialist to say, I give evidences to expose the suppression of truth, I say, Amen. But they don't tell me that. They say, I give evidence to convince this person of something that they didn't already know. And I say, that's contrary to what scripture says. Yeah, I did, I I think First Kings eighteen seems to make it clear that they that it was something they did not know. Now you might say in the psychological complexity of humans that on some level they knew it and some level they did not. But it, if you're going to zoom out from the complexity of it and you just look at the plain sense of the passage, it seems as though they didn't know it. <clears throat> evidence was given, and so my point about the resurrection isn't will the will evidence of the resurrection convince everyone? It's is evidence of the resurrection a biblical method? Of giving people a reason to believe, and I think it is based upon <clears throat> um, things like First no, Kings eighteen. No, because it's no, because it's probabilistic. Well, okay, it's you can present you can, you, can, you can present it as probabilistic. Can, what if I present it as right. the only possible explanation is that Jesus rose? Now, is it good evidence? Yeah, no, but the thing is, even if you convince them of that, it doesn't make a difference. But I'm, you I'm just saying arguments. it's not probabilistic anymore. Now it's now it's one hundred percent. Yeah, it's that's right. It's a hundred percent that Jesus rose, but it's not a hundred percent that he's God. Yeah, that 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 the resurrection of Jesus also proves his nature and his character. Well, it doesn't do that. How does, it, how does it do that? I think that the very nature of the resurrection is it's a confirming miracle, just like the fire coming down confirmed that Yahweh was God. Well, I, yeah, I don't think that that's the case. Somebody says, "Well, therefore, it's true what he said," but that's not what the resurrection does. The resurrection shows that a man who was dead came back to life. It doesn't it confirm says, what he said. It it's says, very coincidental. No, no, no. The scripture says he gave assurance to us. Let me find the scripture. Um, this, is, this is an important point, I think, right? Um, Acts 17.31, it says, Because he, God, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all, by raising him from the dead, the right. the resurrection is seen as evidence that that Jesus will be the judge of the of the world, and that's a, that's straight from scripture. Yeah, but what you're again talking about is evidence is for the deity of Christ, not evidence for the existence of God. These people who were given this evidence of the resurrection already believe that God exists, and it says later on in the chapter, it says that God forgave their ignorance before. You can't ignore something that you don't know. Now, were all of them aware of the resurrection? No, but that's talking about miracles. And again, miracles, if you can raise somebody from the dead, go for it. But if you want to use that as evidence, then pick up the Bible and show someone. This is what the Bible says. But the atheist, of course, will not accept that evidence. But even okay. if I did grant you that they did not know that God exists and the evidence of the resurrection was uh, evidence of that, then fine, raise people from the dead. Go ahead and do it, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a methodology that talks about the complexity of the eye. We're talking about a methodology that is, you know, reasoning okay, probably. Well, I feel like you might be <clears throat> kind of moving to a subject I'm not actually trying to talk about. All right. So maybe, maybe we can come back to, is the complexity of the eye a legitimate biblical method or thing to share with people? Um, I think that's Psalm 19 and Romans 1. I think those are the passages I would go to to legitimize that. But um, here... In the book of in the book of Acts, what we're being told is not that resurrections in general are good evidence for for believing in Christianity. It's that Jesus's resurrection 
that his past tense, because here Acts 17, he's now at the Areopagus. Many years have gone by since the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he says to people years later, far removed in Athens, not in even Israel anywhere, that they have evidence that Jesus is the judge of the world through the resurrection. And all they have to prove the resurrection is the eyewitness testimony, the historical evidence. Was and Paul so giving I'm gonna say that Paul is giving a historical argument for the resurrection, from no, the resurrection to um, the identity of Christ. Paul was not giving an argument for the resurrection. He wasn't talking about, well, it's not the swoon theory. It's not the guards lying theory. He was not giving an argument for the resurrection. He was stating the fact of the resurrection. And I say, if you want to go to an unbeliever and state I, I said, I said he gave an argument from the resurrection for the authority of Jesus or for, yeah, as judge. I didn't right. say he made an argument for it. No, so but for now, people who already believed in God. Now, here's the question. No, if this, he, is, this is the Areopagus. These are pagans, okay. idol worshipers. They okay, don't here's the question. God. Paul, the same one that wrote Paul, uh, Romans chapter one, if he didn't go to Athens, would those Athenians have had an excuse? No. Why not? Because of creation and conscience. They had already had a, accountability before God. For they, what? To respond to what he revealed to them and to live good lives as he's called us to. Okay, so you're saying that it's a moralistic thing. If they live good enough lives, they might have had an excuse. Yeah, but they didn't live good. Nobody lives good enough lives. I mean, that's what Romans two says. If you patient endurance if you always seek righteousness and goodness yeah you'd make it but nobody does that's romans 2 and 3. paul went to athens and if he did not go you're saying that because they did not live righteously they would not they would not they would be without excuse yeah and they and they rejected god i mean they did okay, not and acknowledge how do god. they how do they know what is righteous living through the, through okay well romans 2 says that gentiles who do not have the law do do the things written in the law because of the work of of god in their conscience Ooh, really <laughs> not the work of some generic um, probabilistic deity the work of the god yeah so the thing is they're accountable because they know for certain that what they're doing is wrong and the only way they can know that for certain is not because they they appeal to some probability because they know that they're sinning against the god they know exists otherwise it would not follow that they'd be without excuse of course scripture tells us they are but god yeah. is, you know is not capricious he does not send people to hell for denying a probability he I, sends people to hell for their sin against him sin against the god that nobody's going to stand before god and say well what do you know you do exist you know i don't think that's anybody believes that as a christian we don't say, well, okay, yeah, well, I, I guess I was wrong my whole life. And I think people will, I, I think that will happen to people. Yeah. I don't believe, I don't really believe uh, in using anecdotal, anecdotal evidence to support the truth of scripture. But here's one thing I would like you to do. Talk to all of the people in your church who were atheists and who become Christians and ask them this. Did you know for certain that God exists before you were, uh, before you became a Christian? And I, I say that even if it was not the case, I would still agree with what Scripture said. But I would encourage you to do that, you know, to maybe uh, support, you know, what I would say the Scripture is actually saying, that they didn't know. I have not met one atheist who says to me, I really didn't know. You know, and of course, they <clears throat> so say to me, you know, I, here's I an anecdotal. Along. Here's an anecdotal statement. Um, my, um, one of my cousins, um, second cousin, so my cousin's kid, my family largely does not follow the Lord and doesn't want to hear me talk about it. <laughs> And that's, which is unfortunate. Uh, but at one point we were having one of those family gatherings that only happens every few years. And um, one of my nephews, he was probably 10 or 11 at the time. And he overheard me say something about God. And he turned to his mom and he said, mom, what's God? So he didn't know even the concept of God at the age of 10. 
do you think he was being intentionally deceitful when he asked the question of what's God? Or do you think he was like, well, this is an interesting concept. What does that mean? Well, th there are stories, if you want to go to anecdotes, of uh, tribes, unreached tribes in Africa where they've met missionaries and the missionary tells them about God and they respond with, oh, I've always known him. I've just never known his name. Yeah, see, and, so, and my worldview encompasses both the 10-year-old and the tribe, but yours only encompasses the tribe and it sort of no, denies... I'm, not saying, I'm saying they have sufficient knowledge of the God for the condemnation. That kid might have never heard the name of God, but he has sufficient knowledge of the God that he's sinning against for his condemnation. I think he. I think as we get older, we get more and more information and knowledge and more, greater accountability. I, I think that it changes depending on your, not only your age, but your well, mental capacity and all that. God knows. Well, um, I mean, you can do whatever you want to do still, but then we can get into soteriology. And I think that will expose, I think, the real differences in our views. Well, that's tough because I was purposely going to avoid soteriology because I think that the argument I've presented would work for whether I'm a Calvinist or not. Well, here, here's the it's thing. just based on the examples of Scripture saying, look, there's examples in Scripture of people who, who didn't know and then evidence came and then they did know. There's examples of using the resurrection as evidence. Um, there's, well, here, here's the thing. You know, if a person contributes to their salvation, it makes perfect sense to give them evidence. But I'm sure that you do not believe that a person contributed to their salvation. I'm sure that you believe that salvation is 100% of the Lord. I have not met a Christian who says no, because I have that tulip test on my website. Mm -hmm. I say, what makes you different from the lost, what you did or what Jesus did? And I would like to ask you that question. How much credit did Jesus get for your salvation? Well, all do, you consider, do you consider faith something that I like do? like? Like it's something I do to, to get credit. Hold on. Let me ask the question. Yeah. I choose to trust God. Is that something I do in the sense like to get salvation? If I just, if, if I do make a choice to trust God, am I doing something to get salvation then? Yes. And I will okay. explain that to you because well, in then, our then in that case, I would say, yes, I do something. I just think no, that's, I would say it's, it's a work. Yeah. So if faith is a, faith is a work. Yeah, and I'm saying that that um, salvation is not of works so that mm. nobody can boast. So that's where we disagree. And you would say that salvation becomes a work. And I say that is hugely problem problematic because that is not the gospel. Then you would have a reason to boast because you said, I did this and my neighbor did not do this. And then it becomes a work because you in, in our uh, Twitter discussion said that you admit that faith is not a gift. And I say that's hugely problematic because if it's not a gift, it's something you do. And then it becomes a work and then it's no longer the gospel. And you appeal to saying, well, in the Bible, it says faith is not a work. Therefore, it's not, even though I believe it is. Well, you have to be consistent. No, no, no. That's, yeah, you're very much represent, misrepresenting okay, me. That's fine. I, I, that's what I'd like to get into. Yeah. Well, I, is, so is faith a work is the question. And the answer is no. The Bible says faith is not a work. So the, since the Bible's the authority on this issue, Anything you say to try to make faith into a work is wrong. <laughs> that is a that is terrible logically. Because let's say that I say, well, faith is me having to run the marathon. But because the Bible says faith is not a work, running the marathon is not a work. Or if they say faith to me is building that huge tower over there. So I'm going to go and I'm going to labor on that huge tower. But because by, the Bible says faith is not a work, that's not a work. That I'm sorry, that's just terrible logically. So if somebody, um, if it's not a gift from God, it's something that you do. And you can say, well, I do it, but because the Bible says it's not a work, therefore it's not a work. But no, you are contradicting so, what you're saying. You are turning faith into a work when you say it's not a gift. And that's the problem. So, okay, we're going to, for the sake of our broadcast, because I, I think we're moving off of the presuppositional no, apologetics but this is, issue. This is, but, okay, let me just tell this one quick story. And um, 
and then hopefully people can see the difference in the methodology because you would say that that makes me different from the lost is what Jesus did. And then I say, here's the thing. All I do is make that decision and it's not a work. And I use the example of a person drowning in a lake and the rescue boat comes out and throws out a rope. And you say, all I'm doing is grabbing the rope. I don't contribute to my salvation. If it wasn't for that boat, if it wasn't for the rescuer, I would be dead. And I say, is that how you view salvation? Norman Geisler uses that exact example. Yes, that's how I view salvation. I say, here's the problem with that analogy. Imagine you're drowning in a lake beside your friend who's drowning in the lake. And now the rescue boat comes out and throws out two ropes. And you grab on and your friend doesn't. What's the difference between you and your friend? What you did or what the rescuer did? And in that scenario, the difference between you and your friend is 100% you and none of the rescuer. And that's why it's a terrible analogy, because we're not drowning in the lake. We're dead at the bottom of the lake. But if you believe that your salvation is you grabbing onto a rope, then it becomes a work. And then it makes sense to give all of these evidences to convince that person to grab the rope. And I'm saying that's not the gospel. So do you have scripture that tells me that I don't have to make a choice or I don't have to have faith? No, here's the thing. I do believe that we make choices. I believe that we're volitional. I'm not a determinist. I'm a compatibilist. But the thing is, you will try to argue that our wills are free. But I say, no, our wills are not free. We're in bondage to our natures. Uh, Romans 8, it says that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And you would probably argue, well, my decision to accept Jesus Christ based on the evidences pleases God. Well, the Bible, according to Romans 8, says you can't do that. Yeah, I say, but, you know, that yeah okay, dramatic. Romans... This is this is where it's a can of worms. At this point, we're we're opening up lots of different threads of thought, and I obviously can't address everything you just said because you brought up, I mean, how many different points? Um, I would say the bottom line to me is faith is not a work, and for your analogy and for all of your your rebuttals to me to count, faith has to be a work. The Bible is clear: faith is not a work. So when you take it and you give it a new definition and you make it a work. Now you have to force in no, theology no, no. that faith is not something you choose. Mike, Mike, please. You are saying faith is not a work, but you're describing it as a work. Do you know what is not a work? No, I've not described it as a work. A gift is not a work. Okay, what is it? It's not a gift. What is it? You're it's saying a choice, it's, not a, it's a choice to trust. That's what faith okay, is. Okay, it's yeah. a choice to trust. Now, here's my question. Why do you make that choice to trust and the unbeliever does not? Is that of you or is that of the Lord? I don't know why someone else doesn't. I okay, no, I'm asking you the difference. Now, now it did. Now the... So God has to make me, right? right? He cre creates me. Um, he gives me the, the knowledge of not only my sin and of his goodness and holiness, but also of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He works in me through his Holy Spirit to draw me to himself. At some point in there, I make a choice to trust him. I don't think I get credit for my salvation because I made a choice. And okay. the Bible's pretty clear. Because it's by faith, it's by grace. That this is, this is faith establishes grace. But here's this is, my it's, question. It's just not... And I understand it's, it's something biblical. that you don't want to address. And I understand that it's something that... Well, know, I think maybe we could do a different hangout sometime and talk about it. Because I think that this video is going to get off topic so that the viewers are going, this isn't what I clicked on it for. I wanted to no. talk about presuppositional. And you see them as integrated. But I'm telling you, even if you got me on this whole faith thing and I became Calvinist, I would still disagree with you. Hang on, hang, hang, hang on a second. Um, presuppositional apologetics is a reformed apologetic. You would admit it, that, correct? Oh, yeah. It is, so but they're necessarily but intertwined. You also admit that not all reformed people are presuppositional. Yeah, well, I would say they're inconsistent. I mean, R.C. Sproul doesn't like it because it's circular and doesn't recognize his own circularity. Well, he does now, but um... <laughs> sorry, <That> was... <coughs> dead people always know that I'm right. <laughs> sorry. Um, 
Okay, but you. Uh, I love RC, by the way. I mean, yeah, I me too. Him. Greatly, deeply appreciate him. So, um, what I think would be possibly more fruitful, and maybe we can come back to it if you want, because I, I've even got some stuff on Romans 8 that I was thinking, oh, if he brings that up, we could talk about it. But I just feel like it's a long video and we're going to end up losing people because we're cramming a second issue in, into this one time. So I thought yeah, maybe we I could understand. go to some questions from, from sure. people who've been okay. watching us. Um, and we'll try to stick on this topic. And then, then we'll just kind of see where it goes from there. So um, AJ, if you could send me over those questions and then I'll, I'll read them. They might be for you or for me or for both of us. Does that sound good? Oh, that sounds fine. Yeah, sorry, I was reading the chat. Oh, man, oh. Sai, somebody said. I don't know if that's in support or in uh, rejection. Never, what I never read the chat, Sai. Never read the chat. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> so AJ's going to send those over to me in just a moment. Sounds good. There's a bit of a delay probably from when I say it to when he actually hears it. Um, so, so far, to recap, like we've been trying to ask the question, not... Um, is presuppositional apologetics philosophically correct and right? It was rather, is this taught biblically? Is it supported scripturally? Are there examples that controvert this method? And I think well, I've demonstrated that. Well, like I would say, I would say that all of the examples in scripture do not assume, first of all, a probability. So I would say, if you're going to argue the basis of biblical justification for the apologetic, none of the methodologies that you appeal to are biblical but i would say that the methodology that says from god through god and to god are all things that includes reasoning logic morality and i'm not going to give those up that's how i will support that apologetic and i will support it with romans mm -hmm. one that everyone has sufficient knowledge of god you know for their condemnation and that's where i will start and i will say that uh, according to scripture everyone knows that god exists these are the verses that i will use to support my methodology or what i would mm -hmm. say the biblical methodology and i'm saying that this methodology is consistent with everybody knowing that God exists. This methodology is consistent with everybody having to appeal to God for rationality. And I'm saying the other, other methodologies aren't. And you know there might be tweaking involved, yeah. and I don't mind you know tweaking, I don't mind sitting down with uh, evidentialists and trying to make a God-honoring apologetic, but sadly, most of what I see, I yeah. think is inconsistent with the Bible. So I'll say a couple things, and then I'm gonna ask you the first question that I just got. But um, <clears throat> one is, I, I actually, I don't think I'm an evidentialist. I think I'm a classical apologist. I think that the, I would fall into that category as I've tried to understand the differences. Also, um, um, the uh, the scriptures that you're using, like Romans 1, it doesn't say that everybody knows certain with certainty. It's, it's in fact, and I went through it in my in my previous video, so I won't go through it again. Well, it's just not, without excuse, I think. They that, are without that, excuse, absolutely. Right. Um, not but not that they're currently aware of it, of, of who God is at well, every moment. It says moment they're God-haters. It says they know his righteous <clears throat> decrees. And I'm saying that's inconsistent with not knowing. Yeah. And I answered that in the video, so I'll, I'll move on. But not then very well. the other one, <laughs> I think, well, well, let me come back to it then real quick before we hit that question. Romans 1, it describes these people. They knew God. They did not like to retain the knowledge of God. God gave them over to a debased mind. And it describes them as, as homosexual and lesbian, as murderers, violent, haters of God. So are you saying that everybody, everybody's a hater of God, everybody currently knows God exists, and everybody's also homosexual and lesbian? No, I don't believe that. But the okay, thing is, so the describing fact, mankind as a group, not each individual. Well, it says also that they know his righteous decrees, and I say that's true for everybody. They know, yes, God's and even decrees. atheists know right and wrong. They know no, God's no, they righteous know decrees. God's righteous decrees. Yes. And I'm saying that you cannot separate that from knowing God, because oh, if yeah. you know God... Okay, well, that would be very interesting. I don't know how somebody's well, is accountable to something that they don't know. 
I mean, you're saying, well, Romans 1 no, says that they are. They're accountable to, to do what is right and good. It's just the text. It just says right? they, know, they know God's righteous decrees. It doesn't say they know him. But, yeah, well, I would say that unless you have the authority behind those decrees, those decrees are meaningless. What is the authority behind a decree not to murder to an atheist? What's the authority behind that? The authority they is going to be... Okay. The, Going to be who God is, but that's not what the text is about. You're just adding to it. No, no, no. And, and the no, Romans. No, no, let's, let's stick. Let's stick with that. If you say to an atheist, they say, "Well, if he says to you, how do you know it's wrong to murder?'" What would you say? Well, I just do. That's not an apologetic. Why is it wrong to murder? If you ask a Christian that, I say, "Do you know why it's wrong to murder?" I would say to the unbeliever, "I know it's wrong to murder the same way you do." And I would say, because it's God, God is not a murderer and you are created in his image. And when you murder, you lie about the God who created you. You misrepresent him. Why is it wrong to steal? Because God is not a thief. I would say, these are things that you know. And the thing is, I have done this on the street. I have had people mocking me. And I'm not saying, this is anecdotal. But then when I go to what stealing is, to what murder is, and I refer it back to the God that they know exists, and I you know, lift up the glory of God as Elijah did, you know, I say, that's when people say, oh, Okay, and I see people change their countenance because it's reflecting on them the character of the God that everybody knows and with his out excuse for denying. So <laughs> here's me just picking which path to plow, you know, kind of thing. So um, uh, I think there's just a slightly skewed perspective there. But I'm going to give you the first question that's come in. It's from Ben Thompson. And the question is, which apologetic method, if any, do we see most commonly used in the New Testament? Did Jesus himself align with presuppositional apologetics? What do you um, think about that? You know, that's, that's a very good question because, and I would say that I'm also guilty of this, is that I appeal more to the philosophy, or I have in the past, and then a lot of the argument of presuppositionalists end, ends up looking like evidentialism because now rather than use evidence to try and convince them that God exists, we're using epistemology, theory of knowledge. So I would say the most consistent and I would say presuppositional method is using scripture. So I would like to develop an apologetic where every single objection that the unbeliever has, you respond with scripture. And this is another reason why it's a reformed apologetic because there's two types of people out there, there's sheep and there's goats. Nowhere in scripture does it say goats become sheep. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and therefore we have to use an apologetic methodology, which is sheep food. So I say the most consistent um, biblical apologetic methodology is starting with the truth of Scripture, which I would say is presuppositional, and in which is I am trying to get closer to in, um, in my work. And I would love to, and I'm working on, I, a friend of mine, we talked about working on that. Every objection we hear on the street, we answer with Scripture. And the best street evangelist I ever heard was a heretic. And the reason that he was the best is because he answered everything with scripture. The problem is that he he twisted scripture. But I think that if somebody actually used an apologetic on the street where they answered ev everything with scripture, that would be the most biblical. It would be presuppositional and it would be consistent. So, yeah, I would think that's the most biblical. So when, when I did my video, I actually kind of tried to answer this question because it, it says, did Jesus himself align with presuppositional apologetics? And um, I think that in John 5, Jesus gives three specific evidences to confirm who he is. And this is part of, I mean, Christianity is, doesn't come without Christ. You know, you need to know Jesus. Right. And so um, he's, he gives the three things and he's like, John, and then the miracles I'm doing, and then the Old Testament prophecies about me. Those are the three things that he gave. And um, right, but wouldn't, wouldn't you say that, the, that that doesn't sound like presuppositional apologetics? Well, I would say none of them are to convince people that God exists. So it's it's irrelevant. I'm saying, you know, and first so, of all, they were, they were so would you say then it's okay to use, if someone says, I believe God exists, but I don't believe Jesus uh, is the Messiah or that he's the son of God, 
I just believe in 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 a in a in a God. Would you say then I could use evidence? Well, that at that point, what I would do is I would open the Bible with them. I would open the Bible and go through Scripture. I wouldn't go and uh, you know point out rocks or mountains or complexity of the eye to convince them of Jesus. Well, they already believe in that God exists at that point, right? Right. So, so then I would go to Scripture. I wouldn't go to evidences. So Jesus, though he he's in Scripture saying. Like I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Would you go there, where Jesus says I'm the way, the truth, and the life, or would you would you say, um, "Hey, look at these Old Testament prophecies. Jesus came and fulfilled it. That kind of that confirms his identity." No, I wouldn't do that. But it seems like Jesus did that. Yeah, no, that that's fair. I mean, I'm I'm not saying it'd be wrong. I wouldn't do that. I would say here's the Bible. I would get them to read the New Testament. I had a fellow actually who um, very early on in my ministry, he was from England, and he emailed me that he said that he was converted through something by, by the grace of God. And he asked me what um, what he should do next. I said, well, read your Bible. I said, you might want to start with the New Testament. And he sent me an email back, New Testament question mark. He had no idea what I was talking about. But um, here's the problem. I mean, I had some dear friends of mine. They took Isaiah 53 to a local campus and they asked people to read it. And they say, well, where's that from? Who's that talking about? And they said, Jesus Christ. And they said, they turned to the camera and said, this is how we know that the Bible is true. And I didn't want to be a stick in the mud, so I just, you know, I let them do this because they loved what they were doing on the campus. But one time, months later, I was uh, Skyping with one of the gentlemen who was doing this. And I said, these videos that you're doing on these campuses, and you say that because of this fulfilled prophecy, that's how you know the Bible is true. I said, is that how you know the Bible is true? And he said, no. I said, well, then why do you do it? Now, that's my question to you, Mike. Do you know that Jesus is who he is because of fulfilled prophecy? It's, it's one of the reasons, yeah. Yeah. And it's a reason Jesus gave. No, but that's that's the reason that you that's one of the reasons because of fulfilled prophecy. Yeah. So you appeal to the absolute truth of scripture. I appeal to the I mean it's true. What do you mean by absolute truth? I'm, cannot, I'm not saying I don't, I just want to understand what you're saying. Fail, true for all people at all times <laughs> it cannot fail to be true. So you appeal you appeal to the certainty of scripture. So so I so my the way I view it is this is like God, right? He has spoken, and because of who God is, his word must be true. Well, now, now, if I was to say, how do I know that the Bible is, in fact, God's word? I don't know that presuppositionally. I, I, I can actually argue for God presuppositionally, but I don't know how to argue for the Bible presuppositionally. Um, and the Bible doesn't do it either. It, it presents evidences, even in the text of Scripture. Like, for instance, think of it this way, Sai. Why even have fulfilled prophecy? If I'm supposed to just assume that the Bible is true, well, I'm saying it wasn't fulfilled to prove it. It's just fulfilled prophecy. That that's what happened. But here's my question, though, and this is where I see inconsistency because you're talking to Doug from Pine Creek. I don't know if he's in the uh, thing here, but they're talking about absolute morality, and you had said to Doug, "I just haven't seen any other view, but I'm open to it." I say, if you're open to an other absolute morality, then you're not appealing to the certainty of Scripture. And that's a problem. If you're open to other views, and I'm saying, look, I understand that, you know, you might have misspoke there. But when we talk with people, we have to get back to what we actually believe. That scripture is certainly true, because if you appeal to it, the you know, the fulfilled prophecies for the knowledge of Jesus Christ, then you cannot say to somebody on another podcast, well, I just haven't been exposed to any other absolute standard, but there might be something out there. Wait, exposed to any other what? I just didn't hear you there. Sorry. Absolute standard of morality. When you're talking with Doug, you said, I just haven't been exposed to any. And, you know, and he actually talked about what about if, um, what uh -huh. about if, you know, if, if Allah is, you know, or, or these other things. And, and it sounded like you were giving a probabilistic argument. So I just haven't been exposed to any other absolute standard, but it might be well, out there. Sure. And I mean, some of the arguments are 
probably are probabilistic, but that doesn't mean God is probabilistic. I, I think that that's, that's a disconnect, but, but let me say this, like, yeah, as far as, is there any other grounding other than God for morality? I think it's fair for me to say, I don't know of any, I've never heard of any, and I think none even possibly, even in reality, definitely none exists, but even theoretically, I can't think of any other grounding for morality. Okay, Does that's that make fine. Sense? When you're on a podcast, then don't say there could be. I, yeah, so I, like I said, I don't, I'm sorry, you you just watched this video. I didn't, you know, that was a while ago and I don't yeah, remember. Yeah, that's no problem. It was last year. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'll look back in stuff and maybe I can try <laughs> to find it and learn to refine my language better. But yeah, I, yeah. I don't think it's... Well, I, I would encourage you to look, look at epistemic certainty as opposed to psychological certainty and, yeah. you know, see where everybody starts in reasoning and to see that everybody start uh, starts with God. Yeah, well, I mean, if... Yeah, so we already talked about that. So <laughs> hopefully people tracked with that previous conversation. Um, next question is um, from uh, Apology of Five. Question for the end, maybe they'll answer it, uh, but is it is it either one or the other, or can Christians use both evidential and precept approach when witnessing? Now, I will answer this with a very strong yes. You can use evidence and presuppositions, and I would like to learn the presuppositional arguments better so I could use it in my witnessing more. Sai's gonna completely disagree with me. So go ahead, Sai. No, you I, I exactly agree with you, but you did not answer the question because you said evidences and a presuppositional approach. I'm not against evidences. Use all the evidences you want, but you have to use them in a presuppositional approach. Now, if you say uh, the apologetic methodology of evidentialism alongside presuppositionalism, no, they conflict. So I say you cannot use both of them, but, but can you use evidences? Absolutely. Paul Taylor, um, he, he runs at the Creation Museum at Mount St. Helens. He is one of the best that I've ever seen using um, evidences in a presuppositional method. And I just love hearing him talk because he worked for Answers in Genesis uh, UK and then he worked for Eric Hoven down in Pensacola. But I encourage people to pick up his book, not because I wrote the foreword of his last book, but um, yeah, I encourage people to check him out. And he uses evidences in a presuppositional fashion. And I say there's nothing wrong with that but you just do not give up your presuppositions when you do it, when I think most people do that. So. Okay, so uh, I mean, like I said, it, you're right. Evidentialism and presuppositionalism are, it seems in conflict in that sense, but that's why right. I said I was a classical, which means I do want to use evidence and presuppositional. Right, but the thing well, is so. classical apologetics is not presuppositional, you know, because they say that they argue linearly and not in a circle, not recognizing their own circle. So, you know, I would say that that even the classical apologetic is not a combination of the two. I think it's an opposition to it. And I would encourage people to listen to the debate with R.C. Sproul and Greg Bonson. But like I say, I'm not opposed to evidence because that's one thing that I think uh, comes across wrongly. I, you know, I would say to people, if you're going to fail, fail on the side of not giving evidences. But God can strike a straight blow with a bent stick. I think there's probably most of the Christians out there were converted through evidences. But again, my question, my question is, which evidence can make you no longer a Christian? Because if you're converted by evidences and it follows that evidences can make you no longer a Christian, that's a problem because then you have not totally submitted your heart and mind to Jesus Christ. Yeah, I, just, I don't think that makes sense. No, hang on. Okay, let's, let's explore that. Are there evidences that can make you no longer a Christian? Um, only if reality was different than it is. I mean, because the evidence is already in. No, no, but... It's but, like the, court, the case has already been argued. The evidence for Christ is already there. So well, the only thing you could do is to somehow change reality so that evidence doesn't exist. Okay, then let me ask you this question. If somebody has said to you, this and this evidence, if they found the bones of Jesus Christ, I would no longer be a Christian. Would you have a problem with that? 
I, I wouldn't think it was the bones of Jesus. I think that no, that's, that's, not what I'm, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not, I'm not saying yourself. I'm saying if somebody came up to you and said, you know, if they found the bones of Jesus, I wouldn't be a Christian anymore. And then I think that you would have every right to question who their authority was because it wouldn't be Jesus Christ. Because I'm saying it's impossible to find the bones of Jesus Christ. You know, and that's where I would start. And if you agree with me on that, then you agree with me that the objection, you know, somebody come up, you say, well, if this evidence represented, I would no longer believe. I would say that's impossible. If you agree with me, that's impossible. Then we agree on that point. Yeah. Uh, I don't <laughs> I don't know how to wrap my head around that. In all honesty. That's no problem. No problem. You can watch it again. <laughs> I, just, I just don't know how to wrap my head around that. Um, if someone told me they found the bones of Jesus, I'd be like, you didn't. Now, right. if, if you're saying, but what if they did find the bones no, of no, Jesus? No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. Like, I'm saying. I'm saying if somebody in your church came up to you and said, Mike, if they found the bones of Jesus, I wouldn't be a Christian anymore. You wouldn't say, mm -hmm. okay, well, you're a Christian. You would say, it's impossible to find the bones of Jesus Christ. And you would say, if you think that something could disprove Christianity for you, then Jesus is not Lord of your reasoning. I think that would be fair to say to that person. Because you're saying, if there is something that can, I'm not talking about you, but if you had a, somebody from your church come up to you and say, this evidence would make me longer, no longer a Christian, I'd say you would tell that person to repent. You yeah, wouldn't I, say. And, and here's where we, I think, I think we do split here. I think we split here. I think if someone, I, I would be the guy who would say, if you could prove to me that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, how could I be a Christian? I just don't think you can prove it. I don't think there's any evidence that could prove it because in reality it happened. So there's not going to be the evidence. Um, right. But if so that person here, here, I think we, we disagree. No, but if that person said that this and this evidence could convince me that Christianity is not true, then you would admit that Jesus is not Lord of the reason. If something could convince them that it wasn't true, then they I don't know submitted. what, I don't know what Jesus being Lord of my reasoning means. Well, that nothing could contradict the truth of Christianity, that he is foundational to reason. He's foundational to truth. So mm. therefore, it follows that nothing could make it not true. But if you have somebody, somebody coming up to you and saying, well, this could make it not true, it shows that Jesus is not foundational to the reasoning. It shows that they're still judge over all of these evidences, over truth. Mm. And I say that's problematic. And I'm See, glad I that you agree with me that nothing could convince you it wasn't true. But I think that you would also agree with me if somebody said, well, this can convince me that it's not true, then Jesus is not foundational to the reasoning. Because you cannot reason out of a position that God is Lord of your reasoning. If you reason out of that position, then it shows that God was never Lord of your reasoning. As it says in 1 John 2.19, yeah. those who left us were never among us. Let me ask you this. Is there, mm -hmm. is there a scripture that clearly explains the concept of Jesus being Lord of your reasoning? I mean, yeah. not, not Jesus. Colossians 2, Colossians okay. 2, 2 and 3. So this is, I, I want to see that it's clearly taught in scripture that Jesus sure. is, is, quote, Lord of my reasoning, and then it means the kind of thing you're meaning right now. So Colossians sure. 2. Mm -hmm. Colossians mm -hmm. 2, 2 and 3. So I, 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 it says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures and wisdom of, and treasures right. of wisdom and knowledge. Mm -hmm. right. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's like the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, that you cannot have wisdom and knowledge without Christ. That is in not Christ, what that verse Christ, is about at all. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Okay, so Paul's consistent. Like I'd encourage you to do a, a study on the word mystery in the writings of Paul, like Romans, Colossians, Ephesians, and that's look at the word mystery. prior in that verse. That's prior <clears throat> in that verse. Prior? Yeah. What do you mean? In whom... 
in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Uh -huh. So the mystery of God is the gospel which has been revealed since Jesus came, died, and rose again. And then it was like, wow, now we understand what God was planning all this time in creation. We understand it was about Jesus. And so that's the mystery of God. It's not yeah, talking about the foundation the for how we reason. It's talking uh -huh. about the revelation of the gospel. That's the first half of the verse. The second half of the verse says, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Jesus Christ. Yes. all the, And that's what that's about. That's about the mystery revealed in the, of the gospel. Well, of the two of us, I believe that you cannot reason without Jesus Christ as your foundation, whether you know it or not, that Jesus Christ is part of the Godhead. Jesus Christ is the truth. He's the way and the truth and the life. And you cannot reason without truth. So I'm saying that that is consistent. And I would say that, you know, our reason is also fallen. And that's why when you um, engage unbelievers, you see they can't even see what you're talking about. It's, you know, in uh, first. Their reason is fallen and they can't see. Then how do they know that God exists? How they have sufficient knowledge with their fallen reasoning. They so, they have, reason, so they have reasoning that works. They have they have sufficient knowledge for their condemnation, but not sufficient knowledge for their salvation. Because mm -hmm. as as it says in First Corinthians, this is folly to them. These things that you know cannot be. These things are spiritually discerned, and the unbeliever cannot understand them. As it says in Romans eight as well. And we're saying, no, 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 that's not true, God. I'm going to see that they can come to a saving knowledge of you using their autonomous reasoning. When I'm saying, no, that the reasoning is not autonomous, according to Scripture. I agree that reasoning the fear is not of the, Lord, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Jesus Christ. I think that they're consistent. Yeah, that the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Well, I mean, do and, your own study on the word mystery in the writings of Paul. Okay, 1 Timothy 6.20. It's talking about the gospel. It's not talking about... 1 Timothy 6.20. reason. 1 Timothy 6.20 talks about knowledge falsely so-called. And if you go to Colossians 2, verse 8, what is uh, knowledge that's falsely so-called? It's knowledge that is not founded in Jesus Christ. So 1 Timothy 6, 20, Colossians 2, verse 8, those are the verses that I would appeal to to support that you cannot know anything without starting with God, without starting with Jesus Christ. The, the, the problem I have with using those passages is those are generic passages about bad reasoning and bad philosophy drawing people away from Jesus. And you're using it to talk about presuppositional apologetics instead of you what it probably me. meant to the original audience. Like the original audience wasn't thinking. Paul's here telling us that the presuppositional method is the is the way we must think. That's that's just not that wasn't probably even anywhere in their minds. Well, look at First Timothy six twenty. He's warning. He's warning Timothy. Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and, and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge by professing it some right. strayed concerning the faith. What is false knowledge? Knowledge that's not accurate. When you think you know something and it's, it's wrong, it's false but knowledge. Would you say that it would be fair if you go to Colossians 2 verse 8? Each way that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spirits of spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Mm. He says, be wary of this false knowledge. And it's described in Colossians 2.8, knowledge that is not founded on Christ. And you're saying, I'm going to use my autonomous reasoning to examine this evidence to try and get to Christ. And First Peter 3.15 says, set apart Christ as Lord. It doesn't say set him on a shelf. It says start with Jesus Christ, and that's okay, the so, Magna Carta. That's the Magna we, Carta. Talk about the First Peter passage because these are what we're doing right now is actually great because these are like kind of the proof texts for um, presuppositional apologetics. I think the Colossians two eight passage is is a very broad statement 
And I hear people all the time take it and use it to attack whatever philosophy they don't like. But, do but you first, you have to establish that that philosophy. I, Sorry, go ahead. Do you remember? What, do you remember what we said about the Elijah? I said, "Walk the show with your presuppositions." Oh, hey, so hold on for a moment because you yeah. went black and you're kind of cutting in and out. So we'll just give it a second Sorry. see if it will it will get you going again, and then I can listen to what you're saying. Uh, go ahead and try. Yeah, it. we had, we had a bit of a, a storm going on here in Ontario, Canada. But um, yeah, like I said earlier, is that you said that you will examine this verse with your presupposition or my presupposition, the Elijah verse, and and you're examining these verses with your presuppositions. And I say, you know, we just have to see which ones can be reconciled with each other. And um, you know, I'll leave that to the viewers to decide. And then what, the other passage, though, was um, was it First Peter, Second Peter, the First Peter three fifteen. Oh yes, First Peter three fifteen. I was hoping we could talk about this one. So your view of this of this verse is, if I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, but um, it says, you know, the part we always quote, right? Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, but with gentleness and respect. So apologists will quote that, like, so you're supposed to give reasons for why you believe, and <clears throat> you say, yeah, but you guys are missing the first part of the verse. It says in your heart, honor Christ as Lord, or, or set apart Christ as Lord, and that is the presuppositional method or right. philosophy establish presuppositional philosophy, then you can go ahead and give reasons. Is that, and that's your view of First Peter 3.15. Well, I'm not saying established presuppositional philosophy. Here's, here's, I'll give you an example. I had these two college kids come up with to me one day and they were all excited. They said, I used presuppositional apologetics on that guy at school the other day. I said, never tell me that again. Tell me that you honored Jesus Christ as Lord. So I'm saying that's what we have to do in our methodology. We don't put him on the shelf. We honor him as Lord. And I say we do that by starting with the truth of him. We don't do it by starting with the truth of autonomous reasoning and concluding the truth of Jesus Christ. So that's what I'm saying that this is doing. So I'm saying the presuppositional method is honoring Christ as Lord. It's not putting him on a shelf. It's not. And that's what you see in all of these other debates. The gospel is not preached. It's an it's well, a sometimes no sometimes it is sometimes it's not it just depends on the guy doing right it. But, I, but as a as an attachment though it's not the central to the reasoning of the unbeliever it's no I'm going to try and convince you with your autonomous reasoning that your reasoning isn't autonomous and to me that seems counterproductive yeah but I but the question is is that what First Peter three fifteen is saying I do believe and, so and that's where I would say when I read the whole thing in context is talking about godly character. Um, and Set apart not, Christ as Lord as, as godly character. Yeah. So if I read, if I back up a couple of verses, it says, um, "Now, whom is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy." This is about persecution and having having uh, my eyes on the Lord and trusting God in the middle of being persecuted for righteousness. Then it says, it goes on, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, that's about character, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And so I'm here, it's, it's talking about persecution, honor Christ as Lord, don't buckle under persecution, don't compromise your character, and give a, a reason for the well, hope that's in you. That's would, just... The, Verse I, would, verse I would encourage people to look at the apologetic methodologies and see which one honors Christ as Lord. But I would also take people to the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. They always start there, but that's not where the Great Commission starts. It also starts, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Mm -hmm. 
Go therefore. And we're saying, no, I'm going to argue for the authority of Jesus Christ instead of starting with his authority, as it says in verse 18 of uh, Matthew 28. And I'm saying that's the same thing. Now you say, well, you're going to say all authority in heaven on me uh, on earth has been given to me. And you might say, well, that means, well, you behave when you share your faith. Behave when you go out. No, I'm saying that starting with the authority of Jesus Christ. Yeah, but I'm not. not you, didn't, you didn't hear me interpret that that passage. No, I understand. Don't, don't force my interpretation of First Peter onto Matthew. No, but I'm saying that we will examine these according to our presuppositions. But I encourage people to look at the body of these passages. Pick up the books from Greg Bonson. Pick up the book from R.C. Sproul. Compare them. Look at the scripture and see which methodology most comports with the biblical methodology. I fully agree with comparing to the scripture, which is what this this whole agenda has been. Let me ask you another question. We have this from um, uh, Ben Ben Thompson. <clears throat> Does presuppositional apologetics, and this is for you, Sai, hinge <laughs> on the Romans 1, 18 through 32, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness? Does it hinge on that being applicable to everyone? Um, it doesn't hinge on it. I would say it is applicable to everyone, but I'm saying that throughout scripture, God is never presented as a probability. And I'm saying that all of the, now, even if people do presuppositional apologetics wrong and they, they focus on the philosophy, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that therefore, you know, the methodology is wrong. I'm saying that presuppositionally done faithfully, it starts with the authority of Jesus Christ and it starts with the certainty of Jesus. It starts with the certainty of God, but all the other apologetic methodologies, they argue for a probability. And I don't see that anywhere in scripture. Even if it's evidences that it's given, it's 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 miracles that are given. I say, if you can do miracles, go for it. But I want anybody to show me one evidential argument that is not arguing for a probability. And then I want them to show me anywhere in Scripture where God is argued as a probability. And I'm saying, So you'd be fine with evidential arguments as long as they don't say, therefore, it's more likely God exists. As long as they go, therefore, God exists. Um, I would not. The thing is, Greg Bonson, actually, he did some work. Um, where he took these uh, classical arguments and he made them presuppositional. And what I have read of it was so far over my head that, you know, I think that there's, a, a, you know, an attempt to reconcile them. But, I mean, he goes through these arguments and some of them are just really terrible logically. And that's why well, he doesn't. Was that it. like a yes or no to the question I was asking you? I just Well, I would say... I would say evidences can be used in a presuppositional fashion, but I don't think you can reconcile evidential apologetics presupposition. Some of these arguments can, some of them are just not logical, so they can't be. All right, here's another question from Andrew Osley. Um, Why are they all they, for me? <laughs> I'm just reading them and then we'll figure out who it's for. Um, that one was for you because it was about presuppositional apologetics. But um, So if they have a revelation of God's awareness, then are they also capable of having faith in what has been made aware? Okay. I would I would say yeah if, if you're made aware of something you can trust that thing that's no I would say that the the revelation that people have is not sufficient for their salvation that's why we send missionaries I mean because everybody believes that those people in those far off places have sufficient knowledge of God for their condemnation otherwise we wouldn't send missionaries and if they had sufficient mm -hmm. knowledge of God that they could come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ without the gospel preached to them we wouldn't send missionaries mm -hmm. so I think all Christians believe that these people have sufficient knowledge of God. That's why we send missionaries, because otherwise sending missionaries would be wicked because we'd be removing their excuse. But scripture yeah, but says without excuse. This is that thing that reinforces the presuppositionalism where you assume that if people aren't consciously aware of something, then they have an excuse. Why do you and send missionaries? That's not what scripture says. Why do you send missionaries? To, to preach the gospel. Yeah, but why? If these, okay, if you send a missionary to- So that they might be made aware. <laughs> So if you send a missionary to an unreached tribe and they did not know that God exists, 
And now you talk to, you send them, a, you know, um, a missionary that tells them the gospel of Jesus Christ and they reject it. Now they're going to hell? No, they were, all, they were already headed to damnation. But now condemnation knowledge for their condemnation. But their condemnation is increased when they get the gospel preached to them. Don't you agree with that? So then it then it would be wicked to send missionaries. Well, hold on. Okay. Take your concept you just so you're, so you're saying and apply send, it to Jesus. You send missionaries to them so that they're it won't be as bad for them in hell if they reject or it'd be worse for them in hell if they reject it. Well, that's that's it will be worse. That's not why we send missionaries. That's silly to say that. Well, we send missionaries because they have the good news. Because they have sufficient knowledge of God for their condemnation. Is but that not it fair? does increase their condemnation, and Jesus okay. totally supports that. But if they did not have sufficient knowledge of God for their condemnation, you you agree that sending missionaries would be wicked? No, I still don't. You'd be removing their excuse. Would that not be fair? If they had an excuse. If they had, well, they don't have an excuse, so it's a that's weird right. hypothetical. That's, well, okay, that's fair. We can go but, but the thing is, Jesus, he's like, woe to you, Chorazin Bethsaida. And he's like, your, your judgment's going to be worse because I came to you and did these miracles. This is very evidential, right? Well, you heard it preached, here. you saw the miracles, and then you rejected them. And so greater condemnation for you. And that's not, oh, no, I, no, I believe they're victims that. now. They deserve it. Yeah, I believe that. Well, we both agree that they're without excuse. So the question really doesn't apply. We mm -hmm. both agree that they're without excuse. And we send missionaries because they're without excuse. We just would differentiate on why they're without excuse. You think they're without excuse because they should have known. And I say they're without excuse because they do know. Well, some of them know, and maybe some have suppressed it to the point where they just honestly are deceived. Well, to suppress it, you have to hold it. I mean, you use the beach ball example. You know, you cannot suppress a beach ball if you don't know the beach ball exists. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's just an analogy. I think the text in Romans 1 is pretty clear that their their mind is given over to not knowing. Well, it's pretty clear that they're suppressing the truth. Mm -hmm. Right. I agree with that as well. So here's a question for you, Sai, from Tim G. Um, in a culture of moral relativism, how can you even show that the word is true if you can't present facts? Aha, that's a very good question. I don't show that the word is true. I'm saying you can't make sense of truth unless you start with the word. And because this is, when, can I say this? This is, listen to Sai right here, you guys, because you do not understand presuppositionalism if you don't understand this answer. So please go ahead, Sai. No, but the thing is when somebody, like we have some stuff in scripture, it says a donkey talked. It said a man who was dead for three days came back to life. And somebody wants to come up to me and say, prove the truth of this. And there's apologists out there who will say there's a whale shark off the coast of Madagascar and it has a big enough stomach and a big enough mouth to contain a man. And there's no, they're trying to prove that God was not necessary for miracles. And so, but I don't do that. I don't try and prove miracles to somebody. You know, it's, it says they need to repent before they can have a knowledge of the truth. But when they come up with an objection like that, they'll say, well, all of these things are so ridiculous. Your Bible cannot be true. I say, well, look at your question. I look at their presupposition. They're saying my Bible cannot be true. I said, well, it shows at very least that you believe in truth. And I say, where do you get truth without God? And of course, as a presuppositionist, I, I will say you're borrowing truth, the concept of truth, from God to argue against Scripture. Evidentialists might go into all the evidences of why these miracles are possible. I say, you know what? You are borrowing from the God you know exists to argue against it. So I would say to them, is it possible for God to do all of these miracles? And they say, well, yeah, if he exists. I say, so your problem is not with miracles. Your problem is with the God of miracles. And when you have a problem with the God of miracles, you can't have a problem with miracles. Because you're going to say it's not true. And I say, where do you get truth without God? And they will say something like, well, for evolution. And then I'll say, well, according to evolution, your brain is an evolved meat machine. 
and your thoughts are the byproduct of the off-gassing of your brain. And Doug Wilson used the experiment. If you got a bottle of Mountain Dew and a bottle of Dr. Pepper and you shook them and they opened them and start to fizz, which fizz would be true? And they say, well, that's preposterous. I say, well, if evolution is true, I'm fizzing theistically, you're fizzing atheistically, and you want to say my Bible's not true. So that's more of a presupposition argument. But I don't want people to get bound up in the philosophy. I think women are a lot better at doing this than men are because men have the testosterone where they want to win the argument. The women will say, well, this is what the Bible says. You need to repent. And Jesus Christ's sheep will hear his voice. So would it be a proper presuppositionalist approach if someone says, I don't believe the Bible, to simply say, you know the Bible's true? Is that correct or wrong? Um, I would say that... Um, you say that you don't believe the Bible, and I'm saying that your position allows you to not make sense of anything. So it does not make sense. I would show that their very statement cannot be supported rationally. And if they said they believe in God, like say they're Jewish, and they go, I believe in the Old Testament, the Torah, I just do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Right. Um, well, I, I actually have... Um, we, we did a bunch of different worldview tracks. If I go to my website, proofthatgodexists.org, and you click on the tab, um, Other Worldviews, there are a bunch of different tracks, and we did one for Judaism. And by the way, Judaism was the, the hardest one of all of them to do because there were so many different views in Judaism. I was speaking outside of campus once, and um, this fellow said, this is uh, very interesting. And he said that he was Jewish. So I talked to him a little bit more, and then he said he was an atheist. I said, you're Jewish and you're an atheist? So he was talking about a culture of Jew. I, you know, that's what I thought he meant. We talked a little bit more. He says, wow, that's really interesting. I have to go talk to my rabbi. So, you know, what we do with people... And so this Jew, this Jewish fellow that I was talking about outside of Yale University, I was refuting his worldview by showing contradiction between the Torah and the Talmud, which they, they both believe in. And I did this for like 45 minutes. And then at one point I say, but you don't believe in the God of the Bible anymore. And that's what impacted this fellow. Like he stopped and distracted. What do you mean? Well, you've given up that God of the Bible, just like historically your people did when they gave up God and started worshiping a golden calf. And then I would show biblically why they have done that by rejecting Jesus Christ. I wouldn't, you know, talk about the complexity of the eye. I think, you know, when it comes to other worldviews, if one people want to call it evidences, that's fine. But my evidence is that I'll present our, our scripture. And I would say, if you can answer everything with scripture, even to the Jew, do mm -hmm. it. That seems to me to be consistent with a more of a classical approach or whatever. You're, you're, if okay, if if I was a true if you converted me to presuppositionalism, I honestly don't think I would do it the way you do it. I, well, I've given this some thought, thing. and I thought if I was going to be consistent, I would just be more like Jonah, right? Show up and be like, judgment's coming, repent. And then Mike, they said, how do I know that? And I'll be like, you know it. Mike, you would be a better presuppositious than I was. Yeah. Because the I mean, thing is, I have done this for so long that I've gotten bogged down in the philosophy. I totally admit that. I have a good friend of mine, Mike Stockwell, and I was explaining the apologetic to him, and he says, I don't want to know anymore. And because then, I mean, my friend Dustin as well, sometimes after three hours, tap him on the shoulder, get back to the gospel. And that's the problem. Presuppositional apologetics is presenting the gospel. Mm -hmm. And brother, if you become a presuppositional, I want to learn from you. <laughs> well, I'm, de I'm deadly I am serious. Also, I'm deadly and serious. I'm serious that I support the idea of just ignoring someone's objections and just giving them the gospel. I don't well, think I, that's a bad at all. No, I, I don't no, think I ignoring them is right. I think addressing them, addressing them in a loving way. But yeah. So um, here's a, another statement we had from, um, let me find it, um, from Travis Travis Lee. And he says, I have a question for Sai, except your name is spelled S-I-G-H <laughs> for some yeah. reason. Not, you probably not, get the first, not the first time I've heard not that, surprisingly. 
A lot um, of people call me Cy Ten, but for those who are watching now, Ten is part of my last name. It's a prefix in Dutch like Van or Du, so it's Ten Bruggenkate. If you want to shorten it, say Cy Ten B. Oh, and it's Bruggenkate. Ten Bruggenkate. Ten Bruggenkate in Dutch. Bruggenkate. I'll probably never get that right. <laughs> um, okay, so he says, um, as a former agnostic myself, I was not sure that God existed. How would presuppositional apologetics apply to true agnosticism as opposed to intentional atheism? So he's a Christian now. He says, right. when I was an agnostic, I really didn't know that God right. existed. I don't believe him. I would say that there was something psychologically going on with him. And there's one debate that I heard. It was between um, a, um, it was a, um, it was a Calvinist-Armenian debate, but it wasn't really about the uh, the facts of the matter. But he said to this Armenian, before you were a Christian, did you seek after God? He said, yeah, yeah, I think I did. And he said, you know, I would answer the same thing. He said, let's go to Romans 3, 11, I believe it is. No one, no one, no seeks, one seeks after God. Yeah, he says, so both of us confess that we sought after God as unbelievers. The Bible says we didn't. So whatever was happening, mm -hmm. we go to the truth of Scripture to describe yeah. what we were doing. So when this guy says he really didn't know, you know, that's the first one that I've heard. You know, I would probably want to sit down with this fellow a little bit longer and talk a little bit about his testimony. But I believe what Scripture says over what somebody else says. You know, I believe Scripture <clears throat> over the testimony of somebody who uh, disagrees with Scripture. So I, I, my response to him, if, if you were asking me, um, would be, I do believe you. I do think you honestly didn't know. Um, and and Simon, you might agree with this. Would you believe that he believed he didn't believe in God? You know, that, that would be an interesting question. But do you know the question that I would like to ask him? Because I have something similar come up. Like people say, just pray to God and say, if you are real, reveal yourself to me, which I think is a sinful prayer. Hmm. You know, because I would say everybody does know that he's real, but God condescends sometimes to answer even our sinful requests. But this is the question that I would ask this man. If he were killed before he became a Christian as an agnostic, does he now feel that he would have an excuse? And I would like him to describe for me why he would be without excuse. I think as a Christian now, he would say, no, he'd be without excuse. And I'd be very interested to see how he describes the reason for him being without excuse. Yeah, back to that excuse thing. That's really important in this car. I didn't realize how important that was because it keeps coming up, but there's well, a reason that's why. That's what I, I would ask to see if he's consistent. Yeah. And if he yeah. says, no, I would have had an excuse beforehand, I think that would be problematic. And if he says, no, I wouldn't have had an excuse, then I'd want to explore that. I think it'd be very interesting. And I think that if I sat down with him for a few minutes, he'd say, well, I didn't have an excuse because I believe this was wrong. Why do, well, because I really did know. Amen, brother. All right. So Jim Amberg <clears throat> has a question. He says, what books would Cy recommend that compares the methods? And you already mentioned Bonson. Um, yeah, I, there is one book that compares five methodologies. One of them, I wouldn't do pick up the one that has John Frame. I mean, John Frame has done some wonderful contributions to it, but he's more of a presuppositional apologetics is a tool in the toolbox. Um, I think that presuppositional apologetics, as they would describe, is the foundation on which the toolbox sits. Okay. So, um, you know, he can email me, sciproofthatgodexists.org. I used to have a recommended books page on my website, but uh, Amazon changed their policy. So... And I can't think of one offhand, but um, I think R.C. Sproul has a book on evidentialism. I'd pick that up. And Bonson's book, I would pick up Always Ready or Presuppositional Politics, Stated and Defended. And um, also Jason Lyle. For those people who are interested, who are really starting out with this, I would pick up Jason Lyle's book, The Ultimate Proof of Creation. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would ask all of you to pray for me to write my book, because that's why I left my job 10 years ago, and uh, I'm not a writer. So. <laughs> Writing is hard. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, from Lanagame, just a message. Sai and Mike, um, thank you as brothers in Christ, you are loved. So thanks for that. And wow. Chris Buckland um, had a question. It says, when someone 
suppressed the truth of God in Romans 1, to what degree are they, are they then aware of the specific content of the knowledge which they have suppressed? And we would completely disagree here. I, at least I think we would. I would say it's, it's varying degrees. They can be very much unaware of it, or they can be very aware of it, and it just depends on the person. I think that we would probably be closer on that than you might think, because I do believe that people suppress it to varying degrees. I think that where we would disagree is to the extent of that suppression. But I have dear brothers who believe that they could suppress it completely, but they say it's a culpable suppression. I, and I think so we would probably agree uh, quite a bit more with that. The reason that I cannot go as far as saying that they suppress it to the degree that they no longer know is because the following verses in uh, verse 30 and verse 32 that talk about their God haters, they know his righteous decrees. I don't think that's consistent with them having zero knowledge of God. But, you know, I, I, there's it's not a scripture not the hell I, I, I want to die on. So. There's a scripture I think really bears in on that exact issue. Let me see if I can find it real quick. It was in Ephesians 2, I believe. Um, Man, we're doing it was, two hours. Are we? Sorry, I, I love this stuff. I don't always have time for it, but made time. So in Ephesians 2, it talks about how we were um, children of wrath. Um, oh, gosh, I'm going to find the passage, but I don't want to sit here and make you guys. Oh, no, it's a good passage, good presuppositional passage, so find it. <laughs> Oh, I, I thought I pulled it out and put it in my notes to share with you, and then I, I, I don't think I did. Um, I'm going to ask you a question if I can. You answer it while I look it up. Does that sound good? Sounds good. Um, how does Sai interpret 1 Corinthians 8, verses 6 and 7? It specifically says not everyone has the knowledge of God and Jesus. So 1 yeah. Corinthians 8, verses 6 and 7. That's not the only verse that says that. I believe that there's one in Thessalonians as well. Um, but I would say that that's talking about a saving knowledge of God. You know, because the, the Corinthians were uh, criticized for that when they were getting drunk on the um, on the um, sacramental wine as well. And they were, you know, so I would say that they don't have a, they were criticized for not having a saving knowledge of God. Not that they didn't know that God exists. Of course, you know, I'm a presuppositionalist and, you know, I do approach verses with that presupposition. But I, I would say it's consistent with all of Scripture. One thing that I would encourage people to do since Mike is looking up this verse and I heard this from a pastor down in Pensacola, which I thought was a very good thing. He says, get your concordance and get a white sheet of paper, put a line down the center, put on one side, God chooses, and on the other side, put man chooses, and look through the concordance of your Bible for all the uh, verses that have anything to do with choice and fill that out and then, you know, conclude something from what you find. Because this guy, this uh, pastor did that, and he had a few verses on the one side, man chooses, like, you know, um, Joshua said, you know, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So he had two or three verses on that side. But on the other side, he had hundreds of verses. And he, he realized that he had to interpret those few choose verses in light of, you know, man choose verses in light of the ones that God is sovereign over all things, even our free choices. Thanks for giving me the time for that. <laughs> awesome. I agree with whatever side just said. <laughs> <laughs> Might want to listen um, to that again. <laughs> Um, man, I'm, I'm like, no, I don't, I don't know which one it was. And it's probably cause I'm just under pressure. I just honestly don't remember which verse it was. <clears throat> um, yeah, yeah. Anyways, I'll, I'll move on then. So about, about being dead in the trespasses and sins, <sighs> but I just read through that passage and I'm like, yeah, that's not what I was thinking about. Mm -hmm. 
I'm I'm like actually sick with a mild fever right now, <laughs> and I'm trying to pretend it's not happening, but I'm probably a little bit cold brain, you know. <laughs> um, okay, here's a, another question. Uh, Chris Buckland, why are miracles okay to be given as evidence, but nothing else? Would it not be consistent to say, don't present miracles either because they already know God exists? Well, you know, like, as I said, um, I believe that those passages, you know, were for that time, the type of, you know, I'm a cessationist as well, and I don't know if you are or not. So, you know, that's really tongue in cheek because I say that if you believe that evidence is, is all right, the evidence is, was miracles. Now, I believe we can give evidences in a presuppositional fashion, so I'm not against evidences. So, I mean, it's really tongue-in-cheek because I don't believe that there are miracle workers today. But I say, look, if you believe that that's the evidence is given in Scripture, do it. <clears throat> but, but of course, I would, you know, I would disagree with that on many levels. So it's more tongue-in-cheek than anything else. Yeah. And I would, I would say that uh, when Paul gave the evidence of the resurrection to those in Athens years after the resurrection took place, it was a miracle they were hearing about, not one they were experiencing. And that's, in a fashion, right. that's exactly what we do so I, when we present the evidence for the resurrection 2,000 years later. No, 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 no. That's no, no, because he wasn't giving evidence. He was declaring the truth of it. And I say, if you want to go out there and read the testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from Scripture to an unbeliever, I say, go for it. First Corinthians 15 seems to present the truth of the resurrection alongside the evidence for it. No, he's saying what the gospel is. I don't think it's... A, you know, I think he's explaining the truth of the gospel. I don't think he's trying to prove the truth of the gospel. He's so, telling people what the gospel is. So there's um, a passage uh, in Hebrews 2.3. It says, how shall, we neglect, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness with both signs and wonders and with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So according to Hebrews 2, the signs, the wonders, the miracles, and the gifts of the Spirit bore witness to the to what? To the truthfulness. That's what bearing witness means. It's confirming well, the truthfulness of something. Back up a chapter. Chapter 1, where it says that God used to speak in that fashion, but now he speaks to his son, and his son speaks in the word. So I don't, you know, does God still reveal himself, you know, in various ways? Yeah, I do believe that he does. But I don't, again, I don't believe that's to convince people of something that they do not know. I think God uses all sorts of different means to save people. But um, I think that's more of a, a taking the blinders off the eyes. So people say, why do I even argue or why do I give evidences? It's in the hope that God grants them repentance. And that's probably what we'll disagree with as well. I say repentance is the gift of God. Mm -hmm. I don't give people truth so that they repent. I give them truth so that if God grants them the repentance, they'll have truth to be converted to. And that's the difference. I don't try to prove that a donkey talks so that they'll repent and become a Christian. I might talk about a, a talking donkey so that if God grants them the repentance, they'll believe it. Mm -hmm. they'll so this understand. all seems to me to be kind of irrelevant. <clears throat> I mean, obviously, I'm not worried about whether I can prove a donkey talked, um, a miraculous event that, yeah, in that particular way. But... The point in Hebrews is that he's saying, you know, God's word is saying that these things bear witness of the truthfulness of the gospel and their miracles, signs, wonders, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, along with those confirmed to us by those who heard him. So we have eyewitness right. accounts of miracles. And the evidence for the resurrection is literally evidence for a miracle. That's what it is. Do you know what I, else? I think it applies. Do you know what else proves the truth of the gospel? Everything. 
So that specific things were cited does not affect me. Everything that see the, what I tell you, I'm the ultimate evidentialist. I'm not saying that these specific things prove that God exists. I'm saying that all evidence is proved that God exists. Not only am I saying all evidence proved that God exists, I say you can't even make sense of the concept of evidence unless you start with God. So if all evidence proves the gospel, does that mean they had the gospel? Before I say prove that God exists. Prove that God exists. I said. Now it's very interesting because I did watch your video where you're talking about Abraham, and it says in Galatians three eight that Abraham had had the gospel preached to him. It didn't say the partial gospel. It said the gospel mm -hmm. preached to him. So, I mean, uh, like I say, we can go to a biblical study as to what fashion the gospel looked to Abraham, but it says clearly in Scripture that he had the gospel preached to him. Yeah. So would you say that people <clears throat> before the time of Christ knew the gospel in the sense that we're presenting it today? Well, I think that there's names involved now, but I think they, they put their faith in the coming Messiah. So mm -hmm. in that way, the specifics of it, yeah, I believe that these are the things that were revealed to people afterwards. But I think that they were all saved by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way somebody could be saved. Because it was that mystery that was revealed. Only John the finally, you know, angels desire to look into these things that have been fulfilled among you. You know, it was <clears throat> the, the, the veils lifted in Christ. So they could have had accurate faith in God, but not full knowledge of the gospel. So well, everything, Abraham, everything might be evidence for God, and I actually fully agree with that statement, but everything's not evidence for the gospel. The gospel was 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 revealed over time. Yeah, but the, the problem is Galatians 3, 8 says that Abraham had the gospel preached to him. And I don't think that's something that's not the gospel. So how that looks good. It also says in Luke chapter 1 that John the Baptist was saved in the womb. So it, it specifically says how what he knew, right? It says that um, uh, Abraham, he had the gospel preached to him beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So he knew there was this blessing coming upon all the nations. He didn't understand the full gospel, but that was about the gospel. Well, I think that's reading into the text. Oh, well, I just think that's a good Bible study. <laughs> but well, me, I, okay, you're, I'm telling me, you're telling me what he knew. You're saying, but what I'm saying is he had the gospel and he preached this. No, but no. He, it, had the, he had the gospel preached to him. Um, scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying in you, all the nations shall be blessed. Every nation, right? What is it that Abraham knew? That the Gentiles, God would justify the Gentiles by faith, that there was a blessing coming upon all nations through Abraham. Um, so it's telling us what he knew and it's not the, well, the gospel. gospel. I don't, well, I would say that he had the gospel preached to him was his trust in the coming Savior for the forgiveness of his... Now, here's the thing. John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb. How was the gospel preached to him? I have no idea. Mm -hmm. But it's consistent with the fact that it was. Now, there are mysteries. I don't like chalking everything up to divine mystery, but mm -hmm. I don't know how the full gospel was preached to Abraham. I don't know how the full gospel was preached to John the Baptist in the womb, but he was filled with the Spirit in the womb. So. Mm -hmm. um, okay, <clears throat> here's the thing. I'm fading here because I, I guess I, I'm actually kind of kind of sick. So what I want to do though is, I've asked for these questions. I want to like just kind of lightning round. Could we give like short <laughs> answers to a few questions? Probably not. And uh, just to honor the people that have stuck with us to see if we'd answer their questions, you know. Um, so um, I'm gonna skip. Let me just mention this real quick. Uh, Brian Stevens, you 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 asked. You said sigh, and you don't have to answer the sigh. He says, "Does that mean it's okay to kill babies? God does that a lot." Um, Brian, can I just say? If you don't know what's wrong with your question, it's not our job to tell you. <laughs> like, it's so nutty that you would say something like that. And I, I'm, I'm just, please, if you were a Christian, how would you answer that question? Just consider it for a moment. Um, anyway, 
Um, I would 20- say, yeah, put it, you have to put it in context. You have to put it in context. You know, to, to apply the context of the Old Testament Jews to us is absurd. So, yeah. Well, I mean, God, God's God. He, can, he has the right to do whatever he wants. And whatever he does is, is right by nature of who he is. Right. So, but what he's doing is suggesting that we can willy-nilly go murder people because God is the judge of all the earth. And that is insanity. Well, when people who aren't believers ask me that question, I say, why would it be wrong in your worldview? I could tell you I'd be wrong in mine, but I'm asking you why it'd be wrong in yours. Yeah. Um, okay, Sai. <clears throat> question for Sai. We got a lot of questions for you. Um, is there any? In, this is from 20 July 1944. Is there any intrinsic difference between the precious sheep and the vile, despicable goats? I love the goats that, perfectly well. That that person, I saw some of the comments on your video, and that person, if it's a male or female, does not like me very much, and has oh. not. I mean, that's somebody who's an anti-Calvinist. So I would say intrinsically, what is the difference? Yeah, one will be saved and one will be lost. Like, I would encourage that person to show me one scripture verse that says goats become sheep. They are identified. Goats are the ones who are going to end up in hell. Sheep are the ones who are going to be saved. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. He doesn't say my goats become sheep. So that person, if they want to comment on this video, I want them to post the one verse that says that goats can become sheep. Well, I, you know, and if my quick thought on that is that the Bible only uses the phrase sheep and goats in this way very, very little. And so if we're going to take this phraseology and then take it out of the parable where Jesus actually talks about it, or excuse me, not just a parable, but anyway, if we're going to take it out of Jesus's words and then try to apply it everywhere in the Bible, then we're probably going to be stretching the analogy beyond. But I mean, I I would encourage people to look at how goats are depicted and what does the word do to goats? They're being fattened for the slaughter. You know, I think that's consistent. And I would say if there's anywhere in scripture that indicates in anything, how these two different people groups are described that one can become the other. I'm all ears. I just don't see it. But that's just it. The Bible doesn't, in order to say that someone can go from unsaved to saved. No, no, no. I'm saying it, from from goats to sheep, those who are destined. Here's the question. So this view, is the question. Sheep are always sheep from the time they're born. Okay. I'm glad that you brought this up. I know you got to go. Yeah. But you believe that God knows where a person will end up before they're born. Mm-hmm. So if God knows that person, like person A is going to heaven and person B is going to hell, God knows it. It's certain to happen. So I would say that is a goat. Now, if that person is standing in front of you in your office there and he's person B, you don't know if God knows for certain they're going to hell. But if God knows for certain that person who's in your office is going to hell, can they end up in heaven? In one sense, no. No, in no sense can they. If God knows for certain they're going to hell, it's certain they're going there. So yeah. I'm saying that's consistent with the sheep and the goats analogy. Yeah. Well, Jesus, the question is, refers to people who are saved and the sheep and the goats refers to not every moment of your life, but final judgment. You're either a sheep or a goat. I mean, in a sense, in a sense, we're all goats and we're turned into sheep through regeneration. That would yeah, be no, that, that's not what the scripture says. But so people, well, it, doesn't, it doesn't talk about the sheep and goats in any great detail at all. So I'm, well, I'm drawing I'd, other... I'd, I would encourage people to look that up and consistent what you said is that person who's standing in your office, if God knows that they're going to hell, they're going there. Then the question people say is, well, why preach? Mm-hmm. And I say, well, if God knows I'm going to have a full stomach tonight, it would be absurd to say, why eat? Because God is a God of means as, a, as well as a God of ends. Why do I preach to that person? Because I don't know if they're a goat and God might use my preaching to save them. Or he's going to use it to fatten them. It's not up to me. Interesting thing. I, I want to go off on a sidetrack, but I'm not going to do it. Brian Stevens says, um, 
If Allah appeared before Sai and proved himself to be Allah, would Sai reject Allah? Why or why not? Impossible hypothetical. It is an impossible hypothetical. <laughs> um, the re you know, is in my perspective would be Islam can't be true for, for multiple reasons. One is it's things that aren't true can't be true. <laughs> like, I don't understand how that it works. It can't be true because it's Psalm 96.5. But, but in and of itself, Islam is a, a, in a sense, a cult offshoot from Christianity and Judaism. Right. It rejects the Old Testament. It rejects the New Testament. And it pretends that it comes from them. So it's, it, it's within itself. It's internally contradictory, which is why they have to say, you know, the Bible's been corrupted, but, you know, we couldn't tell you how. We couldn't prove it, but it's been corrupted. Basically, whenever it disagrees with our wacky teaching, right. it's wrong. You know, which and of course, it's a people have seen me on video engage some Muslims, and I'm more into a refutation of the worldview. But if you're sitting with a Muslim one-on-one, -on -one, I like to take them to Genesis 22, where Abraham had to sacrifice his son. That same story is in the Quran, but they believe that the son was Ishmael. He's not named. But even in the Quran, Abraham doesn't sacrifice his son. And I say, why not? I say in Genesis 22, it says that God provided the sacrifice, who happened to be caught by the head in a thicket. So what did they put on Jesus' head when they crucified him? They put a crown of thorns and said that was a reflection of our sacrifice. So I might say to a Muslim, you know, where is your sacrifice today? And I've had a Muslim who sit down and says, I'm going to go home and read Genesis 22. So I think it's a different argument yeah. when you're talking one-on-one -on -one than as, you would be when you biblical. have a bunch. Amen, brother. Biblical prophecy. <laughs> well, maybe we could sit down and work out our biblical precept together. Old Testament, Old Testament foretellings and teachings of Christ, identifying who he is. Well, I, I'm not proving that. I'm saying read your Bible. I think you are proving it, and you're just saying you're not. <laughs> but uh, well, here's the but here's the question, though. Here's the question. Same question. If a Muslim were to get killed before you share the gospel with them, mm -hmm. do they have an excuse when they stay? Do they say, oh, "I just made a mistake"? No, they have no excuse. No. Nope. See, we why? both, but we both believe that. I don't know why this keeps coming up. No, no, no. But I'm saying that the reason that I would say they're without excuse is because they know the God, and they suppress the truth and unrighteousness by erecting an other God. Because according to different worldviews and different alleged deities, you can get morality from that. But I'm saying, well, you have sufficient knowledge of the God that you're without excuse. And they say, well, I got morality from, uh, from um, Islam. I got morality from you know, this other worldview. I say, no, no, no. You got morality from the God that you know exists. Sorry. I hope that our we keep interacting on different issues here, that this is at least showcasing the different views that we have, right? Um, we both agree that the Bible's the authority here, but we're both, hopefully this is fleshing it out for people because I think probably the biggest thing with presuppositional apologetics is nobody understands it. <laughs> well, that's fair, that's including fair. Including a lot of people who do it. <laughs> well, here's presuppositional apologetics. Read your Bible, believe what it says, go forth. See, that's why I'm not a presuppositionalist because <laughs> of that. No comment. Yeah, yeah, we obviously disagree there. So, well, um, you don't, you don't, you don't agree that you read the Bible, believe what it says, go forth. You don't, sure, you believe that. I thought you were joking. No, I do believe that's the reason why I'm not a presuppositionalist is because the Bible doesn't teach that. To read the Bible and believe what it says and go forth. No, it doesn't teach presuppositional apologetics. No, I'm saying that is presuppositional apologetics. Read your Bible, believe what it says. Start with the presupposition of, of God's word and do not contradict that when you're talking with unbelievers. That's See, what it sounds like you have to start with reading and reasoning now, but you're, you're supposed to believe it before you read it or reason it. Start with the truth of God and the truth of his word. Now, we can get into different variations of what some presuppositionalists say, you know, people that are scripturalists, but, you know, that would be an in-house mm -hmm. debate among people who use the presuppositional method. And I'll be happy to go there sometime if you get a Clarkian on there. 
Okay. Well, <clears throat> Austin Avenaki has a question um, for Sai. Uh, do you feel like your approach to defense of your points is done with gentleness and respect? Um, with you or on the street? Um, I think he's talking about other times. Yeah. Well, you know, I think me and you are pretty respectful. I, I just had, I just had, um, uh, there's a fellow trying to get me to speak at his church in Texas and mm -hmm. his elders met a couple of days ago and um, they decided not to have me speak there because I'm too harsh. Mm -hmm. And I say, you know, I admit to some of that because a lot of the stuff of me online is the two minutes when we're really going at it. Mm -hmm. Not the other hour that I preach the gospel to and end up hugging the guy. Yeah. You know, and, and I have learned, I think, as well, that even if somebody at any point in your conversation, if it does not look like you want them to be saved, you're probably doing it wrong. And I think that I have changed over the time. But this is one thing that I asked this fellow. I said, can you do me a favor? Can you go to your elders and ask them to show me a video of or an audio of them doing it the right way so I can learn? Or mm -hmm. somebody they respect doing it the right way so I can learn? And I have asked this many times. And do you know how many times somebody has sent me a video or audio of them doing it the right way? Zero. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm not joking about that either. I'm a factory worker. I spent 20 years as a boiler operator. And I saw what was happening out there. I quit my job to do this. I want to learn. Who do I go to? And I'm open. Send me the email. This is a person doing it a biblical way. Praise God. But usually the people that critic, that critique it don't do it. As Ray, Ray Comfort says, I like the way I do it better than the way you don't. So yes, I do. <laughs> I do. I'd rather have, I'd rather have messy evangelism than none. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the thing is, I loved, I worked in a factory. We love taking shots at each other for sport. And I have the wrong assumption that people are going to give you the benefit of the doubt. I mean, there's a fellow in England who was going to send me something years ago. And he never did. I said, did it get lost in the mail? And he emails me two days ago. He says, I want your address. I'm going to send you something. And I responded. I said, uh, I didn't think you're allowed to send excrement in the mail. And he responded. He was all freaked out. It's a joke, man. Come on. So, yes, I, here's the thing, too. Also, there's some debates that happen in a church. And you get atheists coming in there blaspheming God. And, yes, sometimes I do get my back up. But I think the older I get... Um, hopefully the gentler I will be. And I, here's one thing for that fellow. If he sees me saying something that he believes are disrespectful and not gentle, I want them to tell me. And I want them to say, say Sai, you said this. Perhaps you could have said this because that is helpful for me. Just telling me that I was too harsh, that's not helpful. You know, I would appreciate people say, well, Sai, you know, and, and I think that if they see my later stuff as well, they'll see that I am really trying to work on that and I'm praying, praying for that yeah. too. It's a whole different world when the things that you say are put up on videos that people replay over and over again and share. It, it's like, I'm glad I wasn't on YouTube when I was like in my early 20s. Um, I'm 38, 30, I'm 39 actually, I forget. <laughs> um, I'm glad I wasn't because I've changed a lot and grown a lot. And so I'm grateful that there isn't some viral video of me being a, being a fool, you know. So um, by the grace of God, there is nothing online that I think I wish I could have taken back. And that's strictly by the grace of God. I mean, there's stuff in the film that didn't make it on the film. I'm thankful for that. There's this one guy who was heckling me all day. He says, what is truth? I said, whatever God says. He says, what is stupid? I said, look in the mirror. <laughs> and he freaked out. And I apologized to him after. I said, I have a biblical principle that Proverbs 12, you know, he who hates correction is stupid. I said, I shouldn't have said it, though. But stuff like that has never made it out there, and I'm thankful for that. Yeah. Until now. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, 
the the thing here is to realize something is that Christianity's true. Here's me inside. We were going. Christianity's true. God is real. Jesus really is the only way to receive forgiveness for our sins. Our discussion is about how to honor Him and how we present that to others and how to evangelize in a way that honors God is consistent with Scripture and is consistent with the Christian worldview. And that's the discussion. That's actually really that's why we could come on and have a very friendly back and forth because we both start from that same place. And I believe, size completely sincerely, I want to just say God gets the glory and gets the honor. Um, and we're disagreeing on how that plays out in re in, in reality is all. But, Amen, um, brother. Good summary. I appreciate that. Amen. Yeah. So I'm I'm fading fast. Like I don't even, I can't even add two plus two anymore. So I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna call it a day. Sai, thank you so much for this massive chunk of your time. And everybody who joined us online, thank you. I'm super sorry that I didn't get to all of your questions. Um, I was a I didn't realize how much we would get into it and how long we would go. But I'm I'm like not able to keep plowing anymore. So so we'll call it we'll call it a day. And uh, may God give us wisdom uh, in evangelism and in glorifying His name. Amen, brother. Amen. All right. God bless you, man.